When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello and Shaken Saints, Jared Halverson here, glad to have you back. Whether or not you've ever read any Charles Dickens, I'm assuming that you probably know the first line of his famous Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And perhaps more than just know the line, you've, you know the experience or the feeling. Where amazing spiritual highs are followed by just the worst possible experiences. And welcome to this week's material in Come Follow Me. Last week, we were on the mountaintop, the mountain of the Lord, that is. We studied section 109 and 110 about this incredible Pentecostal experience in Kirtland when the temple was dedicated. Uh, and then that's 109, the dedicatory prayer. And then 110, the Lord appears to accept this gift that's been given him. Uh, and then Elijah and, and Moses and, uh, and Elias come and restore priesthood keys to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. And I mean, remember last week we talked about that there were saints there that literally thought that the millennium had begun because Christ had come and I haven't been tempted in weeks. Uh, just riding this incredible spiritual high of this outpouring of, of heavenly manifestations. And you'd think by 1836, well, if the millennium hasn't officially begun, it's, it's right around the corner. Well, something was right around the corner. And that was 1837 which was one of the worst years of early church history. The, if you think about Moses coming down the mountain in Moses chapter 1, where he's had this epiphany and, and seen everything. I mean, the grand panoramic vision that God often gives to dispensation heads. And the first thing that happens when he comes down is there's the adversary waiting to tempt him, trying to nip it in the bud. Uh, that great talk that Elder Holland gave of cast not away therefore thy confidence uh, points out that often our greatest spiritual experiences are followed very closely on the heels with, with the worst imaginable things. Uh, as if the adversary or just life itself were trying to get you to question the experiences that you just had or at least to break up the momentum. An object in motion tends to stay in motion, and if it's good spiritual motion, that's the last thing the adversary wants. So for him to come and confront Moses and say, well, I'm a son of God, worship me. Or, I mean, Moses seems to keep having these experiences because when he comes down from Mount Sinai uh, with the Ten Commandments, after this incredible experience with God, what are the Israelites doing? Worshiping a golden calf. And so, really, do I have... There's even that moment where he's up on the mountaintop and, and the Lord lets him know that there's some things. The, the kids are, the, the natives are restless, okay? The, the kids are, are not, not behaving themselves downstairs. And it's almost like Moses is, do I have to go back? Can, can I stay up here on the mountaintop with you? Uh, I get that sense from Nephi after his amazing uh, visions of his, to explain his father's dream. And for First uh, Nephi 11, 12, 13, 14, it's just this, another panoramic vision and what's 15? He has to come down the mountain, into the valley, and who does he see first? You guessed it. Laman and Lemuel. And they're murmuring, as always. Now, I don't know what it was like for you to come home from your mission, or to end service in a, a calling that 
required so much, but where much was required, so much was given. And you just felt the Lord pouring out his, his spirit and his spiritual gifts so that you could magnify that calling. But now the calling's over, and I've been released, and I feel the loss of that mantle and, and how hard that can be. Like I said, welcome to 1837. The, the, as in U.S. history, one of the few things that 1837 is remembered for is what they called the Panic of 1837. And that was a financial panic that was running across the nation. Uh, talk about the worst possible time to try to create a bank in Kirtland, the Kirtland Safety Society. And it was anything but safe. And it wasn't the, the church leader's fault. It was just this panic of 1837. The challenge with the church, I mean, they'd just been driven out of Jackson County, right? And based on a scholar's estimation, the church probably lost around $175,000 worth of assets, land and, and holdings and, and those kinds of things in Missouri as they were driven out. Now, $175,000 in the 1830s is about $5 million in today's money. And so we talked last week about how expensive yeah, the Kirtland Temple was, and this, uh, this incredible amount of sacrifice that went into it. Widow's might by widow's might. Well, take that, couple it to the lost uh, assets in Missouri, couple that with the, the cost of Zion's camp, uh, and the journey southwest, and then back northeast, and, and even the revelations that came where it's like, okay, keep saving your money so that you can buy more land in Missouri. Uh, you're going to need as much of it as you can to build the New Jerusalem. And it's like, ah, everything costs money. You ever felt that way? I, I sure do. And, and you, you just long for some millennial day where, where that's not going to be such an issue. But it was an issue for the saints in 1837. And they were land rich, in, in, including in Kirtland. They were just cash poor. They had assets. They just didn't have liquid assets. And to be able to build the temple uh, and do the other things that they had to, they had to... Uh, get that, take out loans. If you remember from section 104 a couple of weeks ago where the Lord says, let's talk about debt for a while. First and foremost, you better pay yours. Uh, but with diligence and with humility and with a prayer of faith, with uh, I will soften the hearts of your creditors back in New York, I'll help you be able to do this. Uh, but there's gonna, you're going to need a lot of that help because you are deeply in debt because of the things you're going through. Uh, again, the church had the assets to cover those kinds of things. Otherwise, no New York lender would, would have offered them money. But as far as having liquid, liquid assets, cash in hand, to be able to pay down the debt, uh, to be able to uh, conduct business within, uh, within Kirtland, that was just really, really hard to come by. And so the saints decide, well, let's create our own little bank. Uh, and this way we can take care of one another kind of a consecration sort of a, a, a bank uh, where we can contribute and have paper money and we don't have to have the, the gold and silver to back it all up because it's kind of all going to be in-house. Well, that, that was, that was a, a, a tough time to be able to try something like that. And with the Panic of 1837, the church lost, the, the Kirtland Safety Society Bank basically lost everything. Now, no one lost more than Joseph Smith himself. And this was not a matter of mismanagement. Again, it was simply land rich, cash poor, panic of 1837. And Joseph stood to lose the most and did. At a certain point, he was even warning people, don't contribute any more money to the Kirtland Safety Society Bank. This, this is not a good time. Uh, well, let's just see if we can ride this thing out. And, and unfortunately, it wasn't possible. And so, so many saints 
lost what they'd, what they'd contributed. And that led to, that loss of money led to a massive loss of faith and loss of confidence in Joseph and the other leaders of the church, despite the fact that Joseph lost so much as well on the money side, not on the faith or testimony or trust side. Uh, there, were, there was major apostasy then. Uh, by most estimates, somewhere between 10 and 15% of the church membership left the church at that time. You have apostles falling away. Parley P. Pratt, who is about as rock solid as you can get, wavered uh, to the point that he was, was wondering about things. And it took one of his old converts from Canada, John Taylor, to come back to him and, and remind him. It's like, Parley, if the church was true when you came to visit me in Canada and shared the gospel, then the church is still true today. Uh, let ride this out. We had the best of times just last year. Can we, can we hold steady through the worst of times during this year? And, and I hope that's true for all of us, that life is a roller coaster. And there are ups and there are downs. There's one difference. I grew up next to Magic Mountain, so I know my roller coasters. And you always end up where you started. The difference between the Lord's roller coasters is if you're doing it right, if, if you hold on for dear life, but trust uh, the, the, the ride operator, eventually when you do come back, the platform is on a higher level that you've had ups and downs, but there's a net gain here as you are growing up in God and coming unto Him. Well, I hope that sets the stage for what we're going to study today in section 111, 112, 113, and 114. This week and next week is kind of the potpourri category on Jeopardy, where it's a bunch of different things without a single common thread, uh, but just kind of throw them in together and they all smell good. Now, uh, with, with, with the things going on in 1837, and by the way, it, it's amazing how Oh, how much time is passing between revelations during this period. Uh, in 1831 and 32 and 33 especially, it was just, uh, keep your pen out because you're going to be writing a lot. And revelation after revelation is flowing. 1834, things slow down a bit. There's Zion's camp. We've got a lot going on. Uh, not much in 1835. If you just look at section headings and dates in this period, Time is flying by without a whole lot of communication from heaven, at least not the kind that we're canonizing in the Doctrine and Covenants. And I wonder about that too, that sometimes in our most stressful moments, it's really hard to take time to be holy because we're just running around trying to put out fires everywhere. And I wonder, what's, how's Joseph feeling about all these things? What's the stress level for him and for the other members of the church as he's trying to keep things going, both in Kirtland as well as in Missouri. I mean, even that, what had been told earlier back in 1832, that there's going to be a, you need to have a stronghold in Kirtland for five years. Well, the five years is, is coming up. And so, how much longer will we stay? Uh, is, is there, is, do I see the Lord's hand in all these things that are going wrong? Is this Him nudging us out of Kirtland so that we can all hunker down in Missouri together? But Missouri is not exactly the most favorable place to hunker down. Uh, saints are being driven from county to county. And then that's going to be more expensive as well. I mean, can you sense Joseph's concern and, and stress level rising? And I do wonder, uh, is it simply that God is pulling back a little to, to let Joseph think about what he's going through and focus on that? Uh, it's kind of somebody calls, is now a good time? Actually, no. Well, I'll call you later. Uh, or, and, and there are times like that I've seen in my life where it's not that the Lord is, is unaware or unwilling to help, but it's almost like 
Now is one of those times that I'm not going to put anything else on your plate. Let me, let me soften some things and help support you during this difficult time. You remember Elder Uchtdorf, Pilot Uchtdorf's great talk about turbulence in, in, as he's flying. And while it seems like the, the, the intuitive thing to be would be just put the pedal to the metal and let's get through this, this cloud bank, let's get through this storm front. He said, no, if you're facing turbulence, the best thing to do is to slow things down. And I wonder if in the Lord's mercy, he's slowing things down a little because Joseph this year is going to be really choppy. I'm here. Please take time to be holy. Uh, if you don't take time to be, to be well, you will take time to be sick. And the church is, is dealing with some sickness here. But, but focus on the things I've already given you. Try to live up to that to that Zion level, that celestial level of living, try to hold on to the feelings and the promises that I made to you in the Kirtland Temple. Realize that you have been endowed with power from on high and of all the things you'll need to make it through 1837 with people accusing you of being a false prophet, with people even going into the temple and having these meetings together in the Lord's house to decide how to depose the Lord's prophet. Now, of all these things that are happening to you, Joseph, the thing you'll need most is that power from on high. So lay claim to it. Hold on to it. Stay steady. We're going to get, to, we're going to get through 1837. And one way to approach the, the revelations that we're going to be studying today is based on the context of the time. Lord, what do we, what do, we do about our debt? Well, here's one, section 111. Uh, there's contention and, co and, and conflict within the Quorum of the Twelve. Well, here's section 112. Uh, what do we do with leaders who have apostatized? Well, there's 114. And I wonder, uh, we'll study 113 today too, we're going to go a little bit out of order, but I wonder if even then is a moment of self-doubt on Joseph's part. Am I living up to divine expectations? Am I, am I doing what you would have me do? Or am I, am I messing things up in the kingdom? Uh, talk, you just would, if it were me, I would wonder. Everything's fallen apart. Can we go back to last year and, and rededicate the temple? I, I, I'll rededicate myself if that's necessary. But, but where am I in all of this? And there, I think there's a hint to that in section 113. Uh, so, so a lot of relevance to what they're going through in these revelations. And I hope that we'll see some relevance to us as well. Especially when we are going through the valley after coming down from the mountaintop. Now, in section 111, like I said, this is in context of, of their debt. And how on earth are we going to pay, make ends meet and pay our creditors? Lord, you're really going to have to soften the hearts of those New York bankers because we, we can't pay them back yet. Well, he does. But what's interesting about 111 is there's a, a new member of the church that comes into Kirtland. And he's aware of all the things going on. He goes to Joseph Smith and he says, you know what? There is money stashed away in Salem, Massachusetts. I know that's hundreds of miles away, but I, I've heard about this. There's, th there was money kind of buried in a cellar in a home. It belonged to a widow, and I think she's gone by now. It's, and I don't think there's anyone else that knows that this stash is there. So if we can go back to, to Salem, I, I, can, I can find the house, and we can, we can get to the cellar and, and get all this money. And, and we're home free, Joseph. We're home free. Now, that didn't prove to be accurate. Uh, but Joseph Smith thought, well, hey, if there's a chance, let's do this thing. And so they end up going back to Salem to try to find this, this treasure trove. Uh, on the way, in fact, they pass through, to, through New York to try to uh, 
Lord, are, are you softening their hearts? Because we're going to go visit them and, and see how things are going. And sure enough, they passed through on the way. And, and all is well, more or less. But our, our goal here is to get to, to Salem. And that's going to save the day. Well, it doesn't. By the time they get there and they're scoping things out and looking around, this, new, this member can't remember what house it is. That's unfortunate. Uh, Joseph stays for a while and, and thinks he might have identified what home. But there's, there's somebody living there and it's like, well, do we stay long enough that we can purchase the home so that we can start rummaging through the, through the basement? What, what do we do? And in the midst of all of that, Section 111 comes. Uh, the, and they, eventually it's going to be tail between the legs as far as I, I can't believe we came here to find, to find treasure. Well, that, that's okay. There's a different kind of treasure I want you to look for here. And there is still some beautiful results of this mistaken mission uh, to money in Salem. But to me, it's interesting to think about what this episode says about Joseph Smith. Now, if you're a skeptic or a cynic, you look at Joseph and go, he, I can't believe he fell for this. You might even say, is this the old tre treasure digger Joe Smith coming back? Uh, that you think you can, you can see things in your seer stone and find buried treasure and, and, and silver mines and, and, and go, buried gold and so on, and, and you're just you're falling back into your old ways. I wouldn't say so. I think this is a prophet that is, that is willing to try anything to make, to make things work. And he's looking for opportunity. And if you remember back in section 104, when the Lord says about debt and get out of it and I'll soften the hearts of your creditors, he also says, I will provide means for your deliverance. And perhaps Joseph is just grasping at anything. And there's a, if this is a possibility of the Lord's hand coming through, then I'll, then I'll try it. And I think in our, in our hardest moments, we need to have that openness to to looking for the Lord's hand anywhere it might be. There's something else about Joseph's personality here that I think comes through in beautiful ways. Like I said, cynics would start to question Joseph's motive. The amazing thing about Joseph is that he never succumbed to cynicism himself. And that's saying something. As one who was the butt of so many jokes and so much mockery and ridicule, the one who'd been tarred and feathered, the one that had been driven out and, and persecuted. And, and again, uh, one year away, and it's your own closest followers will start turning on you. And if there was ever a person who probably could have been justified in, in, in being cynical, in, in worrying about the, the, the worst of human nature, because he was surrounded by it, it would have been Joseph Smith. But he didn't feel that way. There's some new member that comes into town and, and thinks he has a solution. Well, let's explore it. Let's give it a shot. It, it, it's interesting, actually. There have been those that have wondered about Joseph's uh, judgment because he often called counselors or put people into positions of authority that later proved that I don't know if that was the wisest choice. Uh, John C. Bennett wasn't exactly the most upstanding mayor of Nauvoo. Uh, and yet Joseph appointed him to that, or me uh, members of the Quorum of the Twelve that fell away during this time period, uh, counselors in the First Presidency that had some issues. And, and there are those cynics that would say, Joseph, bad judge of character. Uh, there are others that would say, actually, here's a man who is willing to give anyone the benefit of the doubt. That, that was true of his, his enemies, his detractors, the people who doubted him. As, as he said, I, I can't blame you for doubting my story. I'd have a hard time believing it myself if it hadn't happened to me. But it did. 
And so I believe. But I don't, I don't think less of you for thinking less of me. Joseph was a trusting person. It's what allowed him to be so forgiving when someone turned on him and then came to themselves and, and asked Joseph for forgiveness. That's happening during this time period as well. One of the men that is excommunicated in Missouri is W.W. W. Phelps. And when W.W. W. Phelps returns, that's that beautiful experience when Joseph writes that, that letter and says, the, the, the war is past. Come, dear brother, the war is past. And friends at first are friends again at last. I trust your repentance. And so you have my complete forgiveness because God has trusted my repentance and forgiven me as well. Joseph, I mean, even the Kinderhook plates, uh, which is a story in church history that people lose their faith over. And it's this, these people kind of trumped up these, these ancient plates and start, try to pass them off to Joseph Smith. Like, hey, we found these. This is like gold plates 2.0. Uh, so translate this too. And he, he, he tries, he starts. He, he gives them the benefit of the doubt. And as he's working on this and realizes, I don't think there's anything to this, he kind of loses interest. And, and that's unlike Joseph when it comes to the possibility of Scripture. It's like, I, no, there's, there's nothing here. Those that would say, oh, he was duped, okay. That's how you want to describe it. But this is a trusting soul. He's not a cynic. And therefore, he sees the best in people. And I, for one, would much rather have a leader that sometimes is, is burned by someone that wasn't worthy of trust than a leader who's a cynic and, and never trusts anyone, including me when I try to do my best and fall short. It reminds me of something President Boyd K. Packer said. He said, years ago, I indulged on one occasion in some introspection and found there were reasons why I didn't like myself very well. Foremost among them was the fact that I was suspicious of everyone. When I met someone, I had in mind this thought. What's his motive? What's, good? What's he going to try to do? This came about because I had been badly manipulated, abused by someone I trusted. Cynicism and bitterness were growing within. So I determined to change and made a decision that I would trust everyone. I have tried to follow that rule since. If someone is not worthy of trust, it's his responsibility to show it, not mine to find it out. So, he went on, as I begin a new relationship with anyone, it is on the basis of confidence and trust. And I have been much happier since. Of course there have been times when I have been disappointed, and a few times when I have been badly taken advantage of. I don't care about that. Who am I not to be so misused or abused? Why should I be above that? If that is the price of extending trust to everyone, I'm glad to pay it. And so was Joseph Smith. It's what kept him open-minded. It's what kept him forgiving. It's what kept him from cynicism and bitterness, as Elder President Packer is describing. He just trusted people. And sometimes he was burned by those closest to him. This time he was burned because he, he trusted and he hoped, and, and maybe this is the Lord's hand shining through. Well, it was, but in a different kind of way. The revelation begins, I, the Lord God, am not displeased with your coming this journey, notwithstanding your follies. What an interesting way to begin a revelation. It's like sitting down with a loved one, and they, the first words out of their mouth in this conversation are, now, I'm, I'm not mad. You're like, uh-oh. 
um, that means they, they probably could be justifiably. Well, what did I do? Uh, you're, you're bad, but mm, that reassurance is a little troubling, actually. So for Joseph, I'm, I'm not displeased. Now, double negatives, sometimes we think, well, that, that's just the positive, right? So if you're not the not, then you are the are, right? Well, I'm not displeased, okay, not dis. Those cancel each other out, so you're pleased, right? No, a double negative is not necessarily a positive. But it, the double negative at least isn't the, fully the negative. Is that, can, can we at least stay with that? Uh, I'm not displeased. I'm not pleased per, per se. This is a folly. That's what he calls it. Notwithstanding your follies. And folly is more than, than just, oh, you tripped over yourself. Or, or you, you, you got yourself into a pinch. And ha ha, this is funny. What, that, that's a, a, the, the folly of it. There, there's a stronger connotation in this time period. That a folly. This is, not, this is more than an embarrassment. This, is, this was a very poor choice but I'm not displeased. To me, there's something wonderfully merciful about the Lord. Even when we do something foolish or ill-advised, examples of poor judgment on our part. We're doing the best that we can, but I don't know everything, and I, I can't see the end from the beginning, and, and I, I make mistakes. They're one of my, the most important contraries you can ever prove when you're studying church history is the contrary between divinity and humanity. Too often when we're young, we think it's 100% divinity and no humanity. And then we see a mistake made or a, a, a poor judgment call. And, and we flip in entirely to the opposite side and go from 100% divinity to 100% humanity. We were wrong on both extremes. And as we try to balance them and realize that, that there's a lot of agency mingled with a lot of inspiration. And as Joseph is is seeking inspiration, but exercising agency and trusting this newcomer with his, with his tales of, of, of buried treasure, this just might save the church. Let's give it a shot. I'm not displeased. We can do better. I'm, I'm leading you along, you are little children. You're growing up in God. You're not yet at a fullness of the Holy Ghost. But I'm, I'm not angry. I'm not, I'm not displeased. I hope you can learn from this. That's what the atonement is for. Verse 2, I have much treasure in this city for you, for the benefit of Zion. Now, maybe that gets Joseph's hopes up. Like, really? Okay, so we just got to find the right, the right house. Well, well, keep reading, Joseph. Yes, I have much treasure. And many people in this city. Now, that might be hinting more as far as the treasure that God has in mind. Whom I will gather out. We're talking the gathering of Israel here. In due time, so be patient for the benefit of Zion, through your instrumentality. Wonderful reassurance on the back of the gentle chastisement of verse 1. Yes, there's treasure. It will benefit Zion. More importantly, there are people, and they will benefit Zion. And it's through your instrumentality. Uh, you, I still trust you as an instrument in my hands, even this, notwithstanding your folly. In fact, if coming to Salem for treasure... Uh, gave the people of Salem a chance to meet Joseph Smith and hear him preach the gospel, if that began to plant some seeds, then the trip was worth it, even if that's not the original reason you came. 
a few years later, Joseph will send, based on this revelation, in due time, many people will be gathered out of this city. Joseph sends Erastus Snow on a mission here. And during that time, they baptize over 100 people that then gathered on to Nauvoo. There were many people in the city. They were gathered out in due time. It was through Joseph's instrumentality as he's planting seeds there. If Isaiah can say that God can take beauty from ashes, then of course the Lord can draw faith out of folly. And trust that when you, in a leadership role, make a decision that proves to be unwise. Uh, Trust that when you're doing the best that you can, exercising agency, and inspiration eventually comes to say, yeah, that wasn't quite the right thing to do in that situation. Again, ashes to beauty, folly to faith, the Lord can bring the best times, even out of the worst of times. And verse 3, Therefore it is expedient that you should form acquaintance with men in this city, as you shall be led, and as it shall be given you. Back in my old missionary days, uh, our old missionary guide, pre- prior to, the, to preach my gospel, uh, had a, a section on BRT, Build a Relationship of Trust. And so much of that is what goes on as you first meet people, and Uh, to prepare them to be able to have an open heart and an open ear, uh, to be able to listen to your message. And it's interesting that here, Joseph, it's not about finding the house and and digging through the cellar. It's about finding people and gathering them to Zion. So to do that, you'll need to form acquaintances with the leaders of this city, with, with people that might have an open mind and an open heart just like you do. Actually, that, that's an interesting realization. It was Joseph's openness his trust of... His, Joseph was a people person, okay? Uh, Emma used to complain that when he was out in the garden hoeing or weeding, it, 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 he, he couldn't hoe up the ground faster than other people would be trampling it down because wherever Joseph was, the crowd would gather. He was the life of the party. He was so fun-loving. He had an amazing sense of humor, an incredibly outgoing personality. People loved him. And they loved him because he loved people. This was not some kind of manipulation uh, to, to gather uh, to friend, friends and things. He wasn't using them for his ego. He just loved people. And think about what we said earlier about this weakness that he could sometimes be duped because he was too trusting. Well, that openness to people that endeared him to them, even when that might not have been wise, it also endeared other people to him. This is an example of an attribute having both a strength and a weakness inherently connected. I call them coins because coins have a head and a tail. And all of our attributes have a positive dimension and a negative dimension. And I'm not saying, well, I'm good at these things even though I'm bad at those. It's like, no, it's the same thing. And the thing that makes me, that makes me struggle in certain areas, just flip the coin over, there's the heads. It's like, oh, that, but that makes me, it, my, No wonder Moroni can say that God can take our weak things and turn them into strengths. And no wonder Elder Oaks can say, but be careful because your strengths can become your downfall. It's the same coin and it can flip. So be careful. And and Joseph, the same trust of people that, that got you into this folly is what's going to redeem the trip. Because the same set of attributes that got you to trust this member is what's going to help other people come to trust you. Through your instrumentality, 
including through your trusting personality, you will be able to form acquaintance with the men of the city, and they'll see in you an honest heart, an open mind, a forgiving soul, a sincere friend that's, that turns the other cheek when he gets used or abused. We will see that repeatedly in Joseph's life. We'll see that in Emma's personality, especially as she confronts the, 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 the gut-wrenching challenge of plural marriage. We'll see that in Brigham Young's leadership in Utah. Uh, we Look in the mirror and see in yourself the two-sided coin. See it in those that you love because it will give you more patience with their weakness once you flip the coin and realize, oh, but it's that exact weakness that makes them so strong in this area. No wonder God is not displeased with Joseph's weakness because turn the coin and it's the same attribute that is providing him such strength. Same is true of you. I, I hope that that helps you. If you want to understand this better, go back and watch the video on Alma 38 uh, as, as Alma teaches his son Shiblon. I've never seen a better example in scripture of a father who so clearly sees some, his son's coin and, and praises him for the heads, cautions him about the tails, and then helps him learn how to keep heads side up, keep the coin from flipping. Uh, that, for, for a 15-verse chapter that most people skip over, there is so much relevance there. So that's a video you might want to go back and see. We see it here in Joseph's personality, and we'll see it many times to come. Verse 4, And it shall come to pass in due time, so he said that twice now, it's like, you got to be patient here, it's all going to turn out. In due time I will give this city into your hands that you shall have power over it, insomuch that they shall not discover your secret parts, and its wealth pertaining to gold and silver shall be yours. So that's an interesting verse, that even what you, th what you thought you were coming for, which was kind of foolish, well, it was <laughs> folly in and out, uh, there will come a day where even its treasures of gold and silver will be yours. Now, this sounds millennial to me. Uh, if, if God is going to give the city into their hands, this sounds like the kingdoms of uh, the, the world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and that's a millennial day. Uh, but, but eventually, th this is part, going to be part of the kingdom as well. Okay? As the tent of Zion is extended, lengthen her cords and strengthen her stakes, Salem will come under that divine umbrella. And, and in the meantime... Yeah, they won't discover your secret parts. Now, that's a euphemism for some stronger language that kind of hints at some Old Testament Im imagery. It, it, the, it's basically, no one's going to uncover your private parts, is what, is what it's being said there. And that's stark language. But it's like, you want to, I don't know if you were ever pantsed in junior high, but that's embarrassing. And, and uh, the sense here of this folly and people laughing at you, that's the embarrassment that comes. You won't be. Joseph, that's okay. I'm not displeased. Uh, you came for the wrong reason, but ultimately I can draw some right reasons out of it. And, and you won't, this will not come back to haunt you. This will not be to your shame. So verse 5, concern not yourselves about your debts, for I will give you power to pay them. And while you're at it, verse 6, concern not yourselves about Zion, for I will deal mercifully with her. Now, those two verses can be taken to an extreme uh, where, where the coin flips from heads to tails. Well, this is one where we're going to need to prove a contrary, because it's contrary proving that keeps things from going the wrong way. In this case, concern not yourselves about your debts. 
Sweet. Okay, I'm not going to think about it again. Well, concern yourself a little bit, okay? Because like I said in 104, you do need to pay them. But, but not in this way. It's going to be, like I said then, diligence, increase your income, humility, decrease your, your expenses, and the prayer of faith. Trust me, I want to be involved here. I will give you power to pay them. But it's going to be the power to be able to work and to earn and to save and to be able to pay the normal way. It's, it's not going to be, it's not going to be winning the lottery. It's not going to, I mean, <laughs> if you think about what, oh, come on, it's divi- these are prophets and they, and they can receive divine revelation. So shouldn't they know where all the silver mines and gold mines should be? Shouldn't they be able to, to pick the winning lottery numbers? That's not how we do things, okay? Uh, the Lord doesn't send miracles when, when good hard work can be done uh, instead. He raises Lazarus from the dead because no amount of, of human effort can do that. But when it comes to rolling the stone away and unwrapping the burial clothing, yeah, that's something you can do. So take care of that. Same with this. Work. I'll give you power to pay them those debts, and you will need to pay them. But don't stress so much because it, it does interfere with good judgment, Joseph. And when it comes to why are you so stressed about the money? Because you're stressed about Zion? Well, don't let that stress you out either. Because Zion is in my hands. And I will preserve and, and provide for my people. Now, like I said about this, what's the other contrary then? If this one is more of the reassurance, the merciful voice, concern not yourselves, concern not yourselves. The other side is, well, concern yourselves just enough that you, that you act, that you act in faith. Here's this balance of faith and works here. Have enough faith that I'm going to take care of things and have enough work that, you can, that we can do that through your instrumentality. I think the best person to summarize that, that contrary is Jacob in the Book of Mormon. As he's wondering, how do I lead the people? My brother was so much better at this than I am. Uh, and so he says this in Jacob 1.5. Because of faith and great anxiety, it truly had been made manifest unto us concerning our people what things should happen unto them. That's what Joseph wants. Please make it manifest to us what's supposed to happen to our people. I'm, I'm worried sick about Zion. And, 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 oh, and that reminds me, I'm worried sick about how we're going to pay for the lost uh, assets in Zion. I'm, I'm worried sick about how we're going to pay for all the things that, we, that we've done and still need to do. And, okay, Joseph, glad you're feeling some of that great anxiety. But how about the faith to balance it out? You see, Jacob in the Book of Mormon, no one uses the word anxiety more than he does. To the point that I honestly wonder if he had, like, clinical mental illness when it came to anxiety. It's... I mean, speaking of a coin with a heads and a tails, that tails makes it hard. But, the, but if it imp- compels you to work and to do all that you can, it was, it was Jacob that magnified his calling, it says in Jacob 1. It was this same Jacob that gave all that he had. He was a man of big feelings. And th- that anxiety propelled it. But thankfully, he was also a man of great faith. And that's what balanced it. I worry about those that have great anxiety and not the great faith to keep it in balance because they will be paralyzed by the pressures they're under. But I'm equally concerned, well, maybe not equally, uh, yeah, by those who have great faith, but lack the great anxiety, because those can err on the side of, oh, it'll, be, it'll all work out. God's in charge, it's gonna be fine. 
well, yeah, if you do something, uh, you understand what I'm getting at? You can fall off either extreme here. And so if you're the more anxious type, work on your faith. If you're the more faithful type in terms of, oh, God, it'll all work out. Raise your anxiety level just enough that it compels you to do something. Either way, in the first instance, you're paralyzed because I have to do it all and, and I can't. On the other side, it's not paralysis, but it is a level of apathy. And in either case, you're not moving forward. Uh, in the one instance, I, I can't. In the other instance, I don't think I need to. Please try to balance faith and great anxiety. Joseph is feeling the anxiety. So five and six, he's being reassured with his faith. Don't concern yourself with those things. I'll be merciful to Zion and I will empower you to pay your debts. So verse seven, stick around for a while. Tarry in this place and in the regions round about. I mean, it takes time to, to, make, to form acquaintance with the people here. It takes time to get, let them get to know you and have some BRTs and build a relationship of trust. You're planting seeds, and it's worth staying here to, to help them begin to germinate. Verse 8, And the place where it is my will that you should tarry for the main shall be signalized unto you by the peace and power of my spirit that shall flow unto you. So I'll let you know. I'm not going to tell you where, where buried treasure is, but I will let you know where you should set up home base. Uh, here in Salem and the regions roundabout. I'll let you know where to tarry. And I love the way he describes that revelation. It will be signalized by the peace and power of the Spirit. Speaking of proving contraries, that's a great one there as far as the Spirit is concerned. That the Spirit is both peace and power. You remember the, the sound of mighty waters that's used to describe the voice of Jehovah? Well, that sound can either be peace or power. It can be the gentle brook that just calms the soul. Or it can be the mighty rush of Niagara Falls. Uh, and there's the power side. There's something amazing about the Holy Ghost that somehow combines the two. That there's a peace, a calm, a reassurance, but it brings power, a, a confidence that comes along with it. And or flip, reverse the, the order. There is a power that comes through the Holy Ghost, but one that, it, that pacifies, one that calms, one that reassures. It's, I don't know, there, there's just, to me, this amazing combination of attributes that comes through the gift of the Holy Ghost. Verse 9, this place, the place that I'll let, let you know you should stay in, you may obtain by hire, so sorry, it's going to cost you a little bit more money too. You're going to be spending more than you're, than you're discovering here in Salem, but, but rent it, stay here. And while you're there, inquire diligently concerning the more ancient inhabitants and founders of this city. For there are more treasures than one for you in this city. Verse 10 to me is the key passage in this entire revelation. You came for treasure. Well, a little foolish of you. But there's more treasures than one. And if one of those treasures, back in verse 2, is the people that you will gather out, another treasure, hinted at in verse 9, is people you will gather out in a different kind of way. A way you're not even aware of yet. A way I haven't yet revealed. But it has to do with ancient inhabitants. You see, Joseph Smith's own family, when they immigrated from, from England to come to, the, to America, uh, Robert Smith was the first in the Smith family line to do so. And guess where he, 
he came uh, ashore. It was in Essex County, and the county seat is Salem, Massachusetts. And so the Smith family records are right there in town. And that's not just true of the Smiths. That's true of a lot of that first generation of converts. So many of their ancestors that came across the Atlantic landed in the vicinity of Salem, and their family history was right there. So inquire into the ancient inhabitants. Uh, you'll make some acquaintance with them too, and those are your own family members, Joseph, and the family members of, of your friends. To, to understand then work for the dead, it's like I said, it hasn't been revealed yet. But I think this is in the preparation stage. Elijah just came one chapter ago, and we're already seeing hearts begin to turn in, an, in amazing ways. That is a treasure worth coming for. Uh, in some ways, it, I think it's, it's beautiful that the Lord can even take what we thought we wanted, and as we're in pursuit of that, He can purify our motives. Remember the, that great, the, the irony of the New Testament when the Lord says that if you want to find your life, then lose it. What? How does that work? I, it will come. It will come when you're not looking for it, though. That's what, what makes this hard. It, it's missionaries, well, I just want my mission to be successful. Well, if that's what you're fixated on, if you're trying to find your life, you'll, you'll end up losing it. But if you try to lose your life, if you just forget yourself and go to work, if it's all about helping other people, you'll find yourself being helped all along the way. Help them succeed, you'll be successful. Uh, search for that treasure, now you're not going to find it. But, but change your heart, purify your motives, and, and you'll end up finding the treasure that matters most. And along the way, if you go back to verse 4 and the gold and silver that will ultimately be yours, yeah, you'll even get that too. But not if that's what you're seeking. You, you, you seek for better things. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and to establish his righteousness. That's what's happening in 9 and 10. And all those other things will be added. That's back in verse 4. More treasures than one. That's true of Salem. It's true for each of us. And keep your eyes out for the treasures that God is trying to bestow upon you. They will more than outweigh whatever treasures you think you're missing. He then concludes in verse 11, Therefore, be ye as wise as serpents, and yet without sin, and I will order all things for your good as fast as ye are able to receive them. Amen. There's a lot in that little verse to conclude this revelation. Wise as serpents, but not, not, a, not a serpent like sin. Uh, the Lord says that to his apostles in the New Testament. Be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. There's a set of contraries that needs to be proven. Uh, there's the worthy and capable that we saw uh, a few revelations ago. Can I do it without sin? I'm not trying to manipulate anyone, but can I be wise? Can, can I exercise good judgment here? That's the capable side of things. And I will order all things for your good. Now, it's, it's going to take a while. No wonder he says several times in this revelation, in due time, in due time, be patient, okay? Uh, you're not ready yet. Not ready for the, the temporal tre treasure. Not even ready for the spiritual treasure. Because I haven't revealed all the things that you're going to do with it. We'll get there. But I do love the promise in the middle. I will order all things for your good. It reminds me of that beautiful verse in Romans 8, 28. That has been 
echoed several times in recent revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants that all things work together for good to them that love God. Can you hear that promise in this phrase? I will order all things for your good. Now there's a principle here I want to explain briefly before we move forward into 112. And it's, I mean, there's a counterfeit. Remember heads and tails? Well, there's counterfeit coins too. And there is a counterfeit that I often hear people say that it goes something like this. Everything happens for a reason. Now, there's, there's some truth to that. It, could, it can just be taken to an extreme. And that's the problem with counterfeits. They're so close to the right thing. That's what makes us think that it's, that it's legitimate. Uh, this isn't monopoly money passed off as, as legal tender. But it's something that looks so close that it's hard to distinguish. But there's just something a little, there's something off about it. I, I can't put my finger on it. And there's something a little bit off about the thought that everything happens for a reason. Because... If you, the first time that hit me was when uh, someone had told me after a, a major sin was committed, well, everything happens for a reason. And, and I was worried, like, don't feel, don't, don't give God the credit for the sin you committed. Uh, some, through your repentance, the Lord has turned some beautiful things, has turned things around. You turned to Him, and He turned the, your decision into something that could bring some positivity. But please don't think that that sin was God's original plan, okay? He, he can just take uh, beauty out of ashes. He can find faith even in folly, okay? Uh, but, but don't say that that's what, exactly what needed to occur. That's unfair uh, of, of, I mean, where's the agency in that? That's, we're back to Calvinist predestination. Uh, no, it happens for a reason, and everything's scripted out. In fact, the script idea is what struck me and, and spurred this analogy. One of my favorite movies is Remember the Titans. Okay? A great sports movie, lots of drama at the end, that final game. I mean, that's the name of the game for sports movies, right? But the interesting thing about sports movies, even if they're based on, on a, a true story, is that there is a screenwriter that can take some liberties and a director that makes sure that everything happens for a reason. You see, and remember the Titans, I mean, there's an injury, and then there's like a, a, a dropped pass or a missed block, and it's, they're losing in the, in the most important game of the season. And, and yeah, that happens for a reason. Why? Because you're trying to amp up the, the, the intensity of the moment so that when, when the victory happens, it's like, ah, and everyone's moved to tears or to cheers and so on. So, so yes, in a movie, Everything happens for a reason, because there's a director and a scriptwriter. But what about in a real game? Does everything happen for a reason? If there's a missed block or a, a, or a broken play, if there's a, a, a dropped pass or an interception thrown, does the coach just smile and go, everything happens for a reason? No. The coach is like, I did, I did not call a play to end in an interception. Okay, That was human error. It's not even always human error. It's, there's a defense that, that doesn't want us to score. And so we're up against something. Now, let's take that analogy and put it into, into spiritual terms or into real-life terms. Which is God? The screenwriter slash director of your life? Or is he the coach that's calling plays? The offensive coordinator that's there on the sideline watching things happen in real time and then adjusting things every step of the way? based on our actions and the opposition's reactions and how things are going. 
Now, this can be a tricky analogy because, well, doesn't God have a plan for me? Of course. Just like a coach will script out as many plays as they can. But, again, honoring agency and real-world uh, situations, there's always a need to adjust on the fly because we are active participants in life. Okay? We're not puppets on the string. If we say everything happens for a reason, then life is scripted. And I often meet with young adults, particularly, who are making these big decisions in the decade of decision and are scared to death to do it wrong because I don't want to go off script. I don't want my life to be impromptu in any way. I don't want to mess this up. And God has scripted it all, and he's going to be disappointed as a director. Well, there are some things that God sets in stone but he is such an honorer of agency. He really does want us to choose. And he is there to help make sure that all things can turn out for our good. He will order all things for our good. He will make sure that all things work together for our good, as long as we love him. So let's get back on the field, shall we? He calls a play, and we run it. And we don't run it well. A lineman misses a block, the, the running back misses his hole. Uh, something happens and you're tackled for a loss. And it, it's now, instead of second and, and four, which is what you were hoping for, it's now second and 13. Now, offensive coordinators don't like second and 13. They like second and four, because now I, I'm almost to the first down anyway. I hope, I hope you know football enough for this analogy to work. I apologize if you don't. Uh, but in this case, I, I, this is not what I planned. This did not happen for a reason. It wasn't my script. But don't worry. I will order all things for your good. I've got a great play for second and 13. Let's execute. And they try, and the quarterback gets sacked. And now it's third and 20, which is the, worst, the last thing an offensive coordinator would want. But he's a good offensive coordinator. And he's got a, a list of plays that, that are amazing in any circumstance, as long as we'll execute them. And he has trained us and prepared us all along the way to do just that. So, third and 20, not the end of the world. Here's the play. Let's just execute. Do you understand the difference? I don't want anyone to feel so, so paralyzed by the possibility of, of messing up the script. That we end up messing up the script out of our own paralysis. Instead of having faith and trust in God... And having confidence, concern not yourselves about your agency. Concern not yourself about the choice that you're, that you're wrestling with right now. I mean, concern a little. Make the best choice you can. Do your homework, okay? Oliver Cowdery, don't just ask me. Uh, balance your faith in great anxiety. But understand that life is, is unfolding as we speak. And part of my atoning sacrifice was to enable me to join you not just on the sideline, but on the field. And so here's the play. Let's execute this and we'll move forward. I will order all things for your good. Now we see more of that play out in section 112, which is a revelation that the Lord gives to Thomas B. Marsh. Now, Brother Marsh was at this time the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Remember Zion's camp prepares all these leaders, and now uh, time has passed. 1835, the quorum is, is uh, organized. It was based on seniority of age, since they pretty much all had the same seniority as far as time in the quorum. And the oldest member was Thomas B. Marsh. 
a very strong personality. Uh, he's most famous, well, among other things, he's really famous in, the church, in church history for the, the problem with the milk strippings, where his wife and another uh, church member's wife were sharing the milk that came from a cow and a kind of trade-off, and I'll get the good stuff on top, the strippings that rise, the cream that rises to the top uh, one day, so I get a little better cheese or better milk, and then we'll, we'll alternate. And there was some confusion and things, and, and his wife was accused of not being fair, and he's like, oh, I'll defend my wife to the grave. And yeah, even when the other church leaders weighed in, kind of going through these church courts, so to speak, uh, it, I think your wife was in the wrong. And it's like, how dare you? And he ends up leaving the church. Uh, ultimately returns to it, uh, thoroughly humbled, by his experiences away from the church, wanting then to return to God. And I, I'm not asking for my position in the Quorum of the Twelve back. I just want to, to live my life among the saints. And they, op- they welcome him back with open arms. That's in the, in the Utah period. He's been gone for a while. In this moment, he is uh, a righteous, faithful uh, president of the Quorum of the Twelve. But again, here's a set of coins with heads and tails, a strength and weakness. He is a very strong leader. And as, because he has a very strong personality. It's that personality that's like, no, you, how dare you uh, think anything less of my wife? And there was a stubbornness there. There was a pride there. Uh, rather than just accepting, honey, we, we, you made a mistake. I made a mistake. It's okay. We all make mistakes. Uh, I am not displeased, notwithstanding your folly. Uh, we can be forgiven. And you can. I can. But this, this stubbornness that made it so hard to admit that was also the strength that allowed him to, to not care what people would think as you're being persecuted as a Latter-day Saint, uh, mocked and ridiculed. It's that strength that allows him to rally the troops and send out members of the Quorum of the Twelve. It's that strength that makes him a, a, a powerful leader. Now in this point, he's, there's been some, again, it's 1837, right? So we got problems and there are members of the Quorum of the Twelve that are struggling and falling away. And here's the Quorum President. And he's been down in Missouri, he's rushing back to Kirtland. He wants to gather the Twelve together so they can all get on the same page. And as that's all happening, and as, as uh, Thomas B. Marsh is on his way to Kirtland, Joseph receives a revelation, just crystal clear. I know things look like they're falling apart here. The church needs an, an influx of, of power and light and testimony and faith. So missionaries need to go. We need converts, and converts are the lifeblood of the church. It's amazing the power they bring. For you converts out there, thank you for making the church better as you joined it. And so Joseph sends Heber C. Kimball to, to lead a mission, Orson Hyde goes with him, to Great Britain, which totally floors Heber C. Kimball, by the way. It's like, are you kidding? I can't go on a foreign language mission. It's like, it's England. Yeah, I barely speak it. Uh, I mean, he, he, like Joseph, he, he sensed his own inadequacies intensely as far as education and things are, were concerned. It's like, there's the tails on my coin. Well, flip it over. And you're humble, which is exactly what you need on this mission. You'll trust in God because you'll trust in the arm of God because you don't have much flesh on, on, on your arm. That's a good thing. So go, Heber, and may the Lord be with you. He goes. In fact, the very first day that Heber and Orson are preaching in England is the day that this revelation comes to their quorum president, who is not pleased, <laughs> not displeased in 111. Well, uh, Thomas E. Marsh is incredibly displeased by the fact that they were sent off by Joseph without Thomas's permission. 
uh, or his, his weighing in on things. It's like, no, I'm the president of the Quorum of the Twelve. Remember 107, we are equal in authority. It's like, well, yeah, but remember 107 under the direction of? That's a tough contrary to prove, but we're, we're working on it, Thomas. Again, Thomas is angry. That's, that's my prerogative. I'm in charge of the Quorum of the Twelve. I should be the one sending people abroad on missions. In fact, I should probably be the one to have gone to England because I'm, I'm the leader here. Okay, again, heads and tails. Uh, you're a great leader, but you also need to be humble. And we'll see Thomas reminded of that in this revelation. It begins, Verily, thus saith the Lord unto you, my servant Thomas. So you're still mine, that's the good news, but you're still my servant. So keep that in mind too. Okay, I am in charge. You, you still belong to me, but let's keep, the, let's keep the hierarchy in place. Okay, you're my servant Thomas. I have heard thy prayers. Thine alms have come up as a memorial before me in behalf of those thy brethren who were chosen to bear testimony of my name and ascended abroad among all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people, and ordained through the instrumentality of my servants. It's exactly what's happening in England. They are going forth to begin preaching the God. This is the first foreign mission. Well, they've been to Canada. Does that count? Uh, of course it does. We love you Canadians. Uh, but uh, uh, overseas, how's that? This is the first overseas mission. There would be many more uh, following on the heels. But they are going abroad to share the gospel. And, and your prayers about them, this is your good leadership. This is what makes you mine, Thomas. You have been praying for your brethren. These are alms that you are offering on their behalf. Uh, we don't have any money to contribute, but I will pray my alms to heaven. Please, Father, support them. Help them. Be with them. Magnify them in their calling. And that is a memorial before the Lord. That's, a, that's an amazing thing to think about, that we are giving God some souvenir of our sacrifice through our prayers, through our alms, something that God can remember us by, a memorial to a lifetime of faithful service. Thomas is providing that. Verse 2, Verily I say unto you, There have been some few things in thine heart and with thee, with which I, the Lord, was not well pleased. So there's some, some disappointment here. I, wasn't well, I was not well pleased. Even that, by the way, is a softer way of, than saying, I'm angry or I'm disappointed. It's just, I'm not pleased. My wife, uh, when we were first married, she'd, she'd try some on, on some new outfit. She said, what do you think? And I, thinking I was being kind, uh, I, I, I thought I was, I would say, well, it, it's not my favorite. And she'd often just roll her eyes. I didn't ask if it was your favorite. What do you think? And that was just kind of my softer way of, yeah, it's not my favorite outfit. So it's all right. You can wear whatever you want. And she does. Uh, she's got way more style than I do. But I love the Lord's soft. Well, it's, it's not my favorite set of attributes. Uh, there, there's something in your heart. Just, just some few things. Remember the rich young ruler? This one thing thou lackest. Uh, Thomas, I guess, has a couple more than one. We've got, I, I at least have way more than one. But there's some few things in thine heart. Oh, and with thee. There's, oh, it's kind of the way you're wired. And I'll, I'll accept it. It's a coin that has a, a, an incredibly positive heads. But I'm, I'm not well pleased with the tales. So let's work on that. Verse 3, Nevertheless, inasmuch as thou hast abased thyself, thou shalt be exalted. Therefore, all thy sins are forgiven thee. So we're already seeing this, lose yourself and you'll find yourself. You bring yourself low. I will bring you high. 
The problem is if you're bringing yourself high in your stubbornness and your pride, then circumstance is going to bring you low. The Lord will have a humble people. You can choose to be or you'll be compelled to be. If you choose, then I'll exalt. If you're compelled, well, life's going to bring you down. But all your sins are forgiven. So we're starting here with a, a clean slate. It's amazing how often the Lord does that for his leaders, despite their follies, despite their transgressions, despite their human weaknesses. So, verse 4, Let thy heart be of good cheer before my face, and thou shalt bear record of my name, not only unto the Gentiles, but also unto the Jews, and thou shalt send forth my word unto the ends of the earth. You are still the, the quorum president, after all. And you apostles are meant to be special witnesses of the name of Christ in all the world. You will, you will help bear off that responsibility. So cheer up. Just because you're not in England right now, and just because you didn't technically set them apart to go, they're, they're gone, and they're doing this great work, and you, are, you get to be a part of it. So let your heart be of good cheer. Before my face, you don't have to, I mean, to be in the presence of God when you've been chastised, you almost kind of avert your gaze and you don't want to look at him. No, you, I just told you your sins are forgiven me. I, I wasn't well pleased, but I'm, I'm still, I still love you, my servant, Thomas. So cheer up. You can look me in the eye. Nothing you have to be embarrassed about. Verse 5, contend thou, therefore, morning by morning and day after day. Let thy warning voice go forth. And when the night cometh, let not the inhabitants of the earth slumber because of thy speech. Don't you love the end of that? Wake up the world for the conflict of justice, is the sense that I get. Don't let the earth slumber. Back in section 43, when we learned about uh, snooze bar technology on the Lord's alarm clock, uh, oh, you sinners, stay and sleep until I call on you again. Well, don't even let them sleep anymore. Uh, there's no snooze bar yet any, anymore on this particular alarm clock. Keep spreading the word. Raise a warning voice. That's not section one, preface, right? The voice of warning shall be unto all people through mine anointed, and there's the, the president of this quorum. Even the first phrase, contend thou. There's the coin. Uh, don't get contentious as you're contending. That's the tales. But fight for this. Give it all you've got. That's the, the head's side of this coin. It was your contentiousness that wouldn't allow you to accept the, the verdict against your wife. It was your contentiousness that made it hard for you to accept the fact that Joseph sent off missionaries from your quorum without your uh, prior approval. I mean, it's the 19th century, for crying out loud. Uh, you're 900 miles away. We've got to get going. Uh, and, and I couldn't wait for you to come. In fact, Joseph had said, God revealed to me that something new must be done for the salvation of his church. That, to me, is an amazing statement. It honestly reminds me of President Nelson, because there's a whole lot of new things that are going on under his, his guidance. And, and to me, it's amazing that things are rough in 1837. Things are hard. And, and if we think we can go down the same old path and get a new result, that's insanity. We, we're going to have to try something new, and we're going to have to innovate. We're going to have to think outside the box. We're going to have to seek. We're going to do our homework and think hard, we're going we're gonna to pray hard, too, and seek divine guidance and revelation because something new needs to take place in the church. That is such a powerful statement to me. It just it resonates in my soul. I'm always trying to think, like, is there a better way to do this? And if we change this, and, ah, oh, man, if I had my wish, uh, this is what I'd, I'd do here. And 
I mean, it's, it reminds me of Clayton Christensen, the great Harvard business professor, when, it, when it's, you know, the innovator's dilemma, you know, and, and this disruptive innovation. And we've got to think something new. And the things that causes downfall in these huge companies is that they keep doing the same old thing and don't think they ever have to try something new. Well, in the middle of a, a, a Kirtland apostasy, <laughs> let's send missionaries to England. In the middle of the t a time where you really need the quorum to become more unified, well, let's send a few of its members overseas and, and anger the quorum president in the process. I don't know what I'm doing here, uh, but I know God does, and he's going to order all things for my good, and I, I, I have a clear impression that something new has to be tried for the salvation of the church. So, Heber, I know this is going to blow you away, but go to England and start the work there. And honestly, this influx of, of British converts saves the church uh, as they bring in such faith. By the way, it wasn't just, it wasn't Joseph's charisma, okay? As people are wondering, oh, he's a false prophet. And it's like, no, it's not, it's never been about me. It's about the truth of the gospel. And, and we're going to have people with a, a clean slate that have never met me, good, bad, ugly, whatever. They will come to have an independent witness of the Book of Mormon the restoration of the church. Their testimony will not rely on their association with me. They will be independent and it will be connected to God directly. And as they come in, as they stream into Missouri, they will be able to, to strengthen their brethren in all their conversations and all their exhortations and all the things that they're doing. The, the Lord is trying something new. But like I said about Thomas B. Marsh, <clears throat> why wasn't I consulted with? And it's my, it's my strength that is making that hard for me to accept. Well, then flip the coin, Thomas. And it is your strength that will allow you to contend for Zion, to fight the good fight of faith, to contend without becoming contentious. Hmm, that sounds like a contrary needs to be proven. That's a delicate line. That To be bold but not overbearing, that's Alma's words to Shiblon. Uh, to balance your diligence with some temperance. That's the counsel to Shiblon too. Sounds like it's the counsel to Thomas B. Marsh. But contend in the right way. Verse 6, Let thy habitation be known in Zion, and remove not thy house, for I the Lord have a great work for thee to do in publishing my name among the children of men. You see, uh, originally the Quorum of the Twelve was called a traveling council. And Thomas B. Marsh was doing a lot of that. He had moved repeatedly in the last few years. And here it's like, okay, Thomas, it's time to settle down in one spot. So your habitation can be known. It's actually going to be kind of a gathering place in, in Zion, Missouri. Uh, so that it's, it's almost like the, the doctor is in Zion, where you just know, oh, you know, or like office hours in college. And that's where I, I know where the, the teacher or the professor's office is, and I can go and I can get the help that I need. And as quorum president, it's not just that you have to be there doing it all yourself. You can be publishing my name among the children of men, and you can have a home base from which to do so. Remember back in section 84, therefore go ye into all the world, and unto whatsoever place ye cannot go, ye shall send. Well, you're going to need to send some things. I already sent some missionaries from your quorum, but you stay at home, create a place. This is like Joseph in, in Salem. Stay for a while. Tarry here so that you can make acquaintance. You, quorum president, make a habitation in Zion, let people know where it is, so you can make acquaintance with the members of the church that are streaming in. You're the quorum president, after all. 
and, and publish the word, to think about missionaries that had to, to hunker down during COVID, uh, under house arrest in some ways. Well, the word was, was not under house arrest. The word didn't have to social distance. The word didn't have to quarantine. So go out and publish. And that's what this generation of missionaries did. Verse 7, therefore, gird up thy loins for the work. Let thy feet be shod also, for thou art chosen, and thy path lieth among the mountains and among many nations. Loins girded, feet shod. Is that ringing any bells? This is the armor of God, and Thomas is to put upon himself all that armor. So, I mean, if you're going to go contend, you've got to get ready for the fight. And no, not that kind of fight. I know that's your personality. Calm down temperance along with your diligence okay but there is this sense of going forth to battle for the lord of hosts verse 8 by thy word many high ones shall be brought low and by thy word many low ones shall be exalted that seems to go back to verse 3 that thomas has been through thomas knows the highs and the lows he knows the highs of pride and the lows of humility and so again, part of your strength, or excuse me, part of your weakness can be used as a strength to relate to other people. Bring down the lofty, just like I've done for you. Bring up the lowly, just like I'm doing for you too. In verse 9, thy voice shall be a rebuke unto the transgressor. And at thy rebuke, let the tongue of the slanderer cease its perverseness. That's going to take some contending on your side, too. That's going to take a strong personality to be that voice of rebuke to the transgressor. But remember what Paul said. And Paul's another example of one of those strong-willed people that fights the good fight of faith. But it's Paul that says to the Ephesians that we have to speak the truth in love. Well, there's a contrary there, too. There are people that you probably know that are really good at speaking the truth. They just don't do it in very much love. They're straight shooters, and this is just how it is. It's like, well, yeah, but how, you, how it is is kind of mean. It's, it's angry. It's, it's, you're kind of a jerk sometimes when you're speaking the truth. Well, there's some few things in thine heart with which I'm not well pleased. That's how, you're, that's how I'm wired. Well, let's do some rewiring then. Let's do some mighty changing, shall we? That's, that's the, the business the Lord is in. And so let's prove that contrary. And let's keep speaking the truth, but let's do it in love. Well, don't overcorrect. You know, people that only speak in love and they shy away from truth because they don't want to rock the boat or ruffle feathers. That's a problem too. And as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, you can't, you can't get this one wrong. Uh, if you're a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, you have to speak in truth. And you have to do it lovingly. And so rebuke the transgressor, but make sure you do it in a way that gives them hope. This is section 84, is clearly and understandingly, which is a difficult balance. How do you get there? Verse 10, be thou humble, and the Lord thy God shall lead thee by the hand and give thee answer to thy prayers. Oh, can you hear the hymn, the music starting up in the background? Be thou humble. That's going to be hard for Thomas B. Marsh, but that's the contrary of his coin. That's what keeps it heads up instead of flipping over to tails. Pride seems to be his challenge. Uh, that that mm, I'm in charge, I can do this. It's going to propel him to be a great leader. But only if he can keep it in check by, by fusing it with its contrary attribute, which is humility. It cannot be hard to be a strong leader and a humble servant. But that's exactly what Jesus was. And it's what he's trying to help us become too. Verse 11, I know thy heart. 
Yes, there were some things about it I wasn't pleased with in verse 2, but, but I know your heart. I have heard thy prayers concerning thy brethren. That's the good side of your heart, a good leader that cares about his followers. Be not partial towards them in love, above many others, but let thy love be for them as for thyself, and let thy love abound unto all men, and unto all who love my name. It's interesting this, uh, you get a sense of the second great commandment there, love thy neighbor as thyself. And if for someone who struggles with pride, loving himself is not a problem. Uh, that comes pretty naturally. But I, what I love is the Lord says that, that's good, hold on to that. Uh, it's, you should be self-confident, okay? You should love yourself. But make sure that you love your quorum members as much as you love, as, as much as you love yourself. And in fact, don't just, don't stop your love at that concentric circle. Let it extend to everyone. That's Enos's experience. It's me, it's my people, it's my enemies. For Thomas B. Marsh, it's going to be Thomas, the members of the Quorum of the Twelve. Ah, everybody else? Yeah, you're the, the presiding authority in one of the presiding quorums of the church. And it's not just these other 11 men you have responsibility for. You need to love every saint from the highest to the lowliest. I'm trying to stretch your heart in a direction it needs to be stretched. So don't bring down your love to get it to the level of the apostles. Bring it the, the level up to that. And don't bring down, it, it's basically it's like don't play favorites, Thomas. Don't look at your fellow quorum members and say, well, they deserve my love more than anyone else in the church. No. Equality, one heart, one mind. We're trying to build Zion. But don't bring down your love of the quorum of the, of the twelve. Bring up your love of the rest of the members of the church. Love everyone. Verse 12, but pray specifically for the brethren of the twelve because they're going to need that. Okay? Keep these alms ascending as a memorial. Uh, they need all the help they can get, and you're their quorum leader. Admonish them sharply for my name's sake. Let them be admonished for all their sins. And be ye faithful before me unto my name. So you're not just rebuking the transgressors outside the church as you are publishing abroad uh, the gospel. You also, I mean, speaking the truth in love sometimes happens to your own quorum members. Elder Suarez uh, came to the Institute and was talking to us and, and just shared his transformation physically. Uh, if you see pictures of him as a member of the Quorum of the Seventy and then as a newly called apostle and then currently... I mean, there's a diet that I want to get on. Uh, well, it's a diet prescribed by your doctor that happens to be the president of the church. And as Elder Suarez described it, Elder President Nelson sat him down and said, Elder Suarez, the, you've been called to the Quorum of the Twelve, and the Lord needs you to live as long as you possibly can. And this is coming from a man who's now 97 and doesn't seem to be slowing down at all. Uh, he's kept his own advice. Uh, he's a good patient, as, as he's a good doctor. And so he says to Elder Suarez, you've got to lose some weight. Uh, I need you to be as healthy as possible. Uh, I have a feeling that a similar conversation took place with Elder Renland. And it's amazing to see those two. And, and just how, I mean, they're ready to go run a marathon. with, And maybe they'll be able to keep up with President Nelson as they do. I, I don't think I can. It, it's amazing, though, to that, that probably was an uncomfortable conversation. Uh, I would assume uh, when, you're, when you're called out, hmm. But to, to speak that truth in so much love that it's like, wow, my motivation, this, I, I don't feel condemned, or I don't feel chastened, I feel called to a higher level of living, so I have something more to offer the Lord. Oh, 
Let me get on that treadmill. Uh, let, me, let me count my calories because I know the Lord is counting on me. Uh, move forward. Admonish them sharply when necessary, which means clearly, okay? not kind of cuttingly. We'll see that in section 121 uh, very clearly, very sharply described. Okay, Keep going. Verse 13. After their temptations, yes, apostles even faced those, and much tribulation, they're definitely getting their share of that. Behold, I, the Lord, will feel after them. And if they harden not their hearts and stiffen not their necks against me, they shall be converted, and I will heal them. Wait, wait. They shall be converted? Are we still talking about the Quorum of the Twelve? Yeah, that's the, the antecedent of the pronoun as far as there is concerned. So, yeah, they need to be converted. I thought they were out converting others. Well, yeah, that's part of the process, right? Uh, you, you rise as you're lifting others. It reminds me of what Jesus says to Peter. Uh, that Satan has desired to sift thee as wheat, or to have thee so he can sift the children of king, the kingdom as wheat. That's the JST. But then he says, but I have prayed for you, Simon, uh, th that your faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Uh, interesting that here's another, <laughs> this, is, this revelation is so similar to that exchange with Peter. Quorum president, you need some strengthening. You need some humbling. Oh, your, your heads and tails, Peter, is so similar to Thomas B. Marsh's. Oh, they, well, those two were cut from the same cloth. Uh, I could picture Thomas B. Marsh jumping out with a sword and cutting an ear off in Gethsemane too. Contend thou, that's not what I meant, Thomas. <laughs> Contend in a different way. Calm down. We got this. But once you're converted, strengthen everybody else. The quorum, once they're converted, I will heal them. Heal them from the, the discord against one another. Heal them, from, heal them from the contentiousness that sometimes erupts. Uh, we have a Quorum of the Twelve that is so converted. And they help all of us feel healed through their words. I also love that middle phrase, I the Lord will feel after them. Usually we feel after things because we can't see them. It, this is uh, the people in Lehi's dream that are in the midst of darkness, and they're either feeling their way along the iron rod to come to the tree, or, as it says later in the Revelation, in, in 1 Nephi 8, they were feeling their way to that great and spacious building. Interesting that it's our feelings either way that are bringing us to God or leading us away from Him. But they're feeling because they can't see. Now, remember in an earlier revelation, it talks about this veil that separates God from us. And we always think of, well, the veil is to keep us from seeing Him. But that verse that says the veil that hides the earth from God, oh, so maybe it's not just us not seeing him, it's him not seeing us. Because if he cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance, then yes, there would need to be some kind of veil to keep him from seeing in clarity just how far we've fallen. He can then approach us, he can feel after us in mercy and in love. There's something about the Lord reaching through that veil where he can't see us clearly, but he is feeling after us so that he can take us by the hand and bring us home to him. Verse 14, now I say unto you, and what I say unto you, I say unto all the twelve, arise, gird up your loins, take up your cross, follow me, feed my sheep. Speaking of Peter, those were similar words given to him. Remember the end of the book of John? Simon, 
Lovest thou me more than these? Interesting, he calls him Simon, by the way. Are, are you ready to become Peter, a full-fledged rock upon which I can build my church? Or are you just going to go back to Simon, the old you, the fisherman you, instead of the fisher of men you? Do you love me? Three times he asks to help counter the three times that Peter, Simon, definitely in that instance, had denied him. Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Then follow me. Because that's what he says to him when he describes his own eventual martyrdom. Where you will take up your cross, upside down even, and be crucified in following me. Oh, arise, gird up your loins, get ready for the run. Get ready for the fight of faith. And this is for you, Thomas. It's for you, Peter. It's for all the members of the Twelve who do just that. God's apostles, his special witnesses, do arise and leave behind whatever life they held on to before. They gird up their loins, which is lacing up your shoelaces. It, it, it's, it's getting ready to run. They do take up their cross daily, the cross of Christ, whom they're bearing witness of, and they follow him as they feed his sheep. I, I think verse 14 is such a beautiful encapsulation of the life of an apostle of Jesus Christ. Verse 15, exalt not yourselves. This is the problem of pride for, for all of, of God's servants. You are mine, but you are my servant. So exalt not yourself and rebel not against my servant, Joseph. He is the president of the church and the Quorum of the Twelve does function under the direction of the first presidency. Verily I say unto you, I am with him my hand shall be over him, and the keys which I have given unto him and also to you, word, shall not be taken from him till I come. I am aware of the collapse of the Kirtland Safety Society. I'm aware of people's concerns and, and, and doubts and disappointments when it comes to Joseph Smith. But I am not disappointed, and I do not doubt his desire to serve with all his heart, might, mind, and strength. Notwithstanding folly, I can bring faith out of it. I can, bring, I can call the next play, and I've never seen a, an athlete more intent on executing the play, even in his imperfection. So I am still with him. My hand is still over him. The keys are still in his hand. So remember that. Verse 16, Verily I say unto you, my servant Thomas, Thou art the man whom I have chosen to hold the keys of my kingdom as pertaining to the twelve abroad among all nations. So this isn't Joseph overstepping his bounds to the point of like, you don't have the keys. No, you do too. You're the presiding officer of your quorum. And where there is presiding, there is keys and in, the, in the priesthood quorums. And so you hold those as pertaining to the twelve. That hasn't changed. Verse 17, that thou mayest be my servant to unlock the door of the kingdom in all places where my servant Joseph and my servant Sidney and my servant Hiram cannot come. Oh, wait, 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 my servant Hiram? I haven't heard about him for a while. Uh, well, building committee, he's done great work on the temple. Uh, Hiram is, is such a staunch, uh, just a servant that can be trusted with anything. We'll see more of him later on in the Doctrine and Covenants. But here, mentioned in the same breath as Joseph and Sidney, what happened to Frederick? Well, exactly. What happened to Frederick? Frederick G. Williams struggled. He was one who, who on, on the downward part of the roller coaster, 
I kind of wanted to leap out of, of the car, uh, not knowing that it was eventually going to come back to the station on higher ground. Uh, he ultimately did return to the church, but there is a time where he is not uh, a faithful member, not a, not a counselor in the First Presidency that Joseph can call upon. And so Hiram is called to take his place. But go back to the beginning of the verse about unlocking the door. You see back in verse 16, what was Thomas uh, given or, or reminded that he held? Keys. And what are keys for? To open things. And so to unlock a door. But notice the door. It's the door of the kingdom that he's unlocking. We're going to see that repeated in a later verse in this revelation. But have you ever prayed for the doors of the nations to open so that the preaching of the gospel, the missionaries can come in? Uh, as a kid, we did that all the time for the countries behind the Iron Curtain. And sure enough, the miracle came. Uh, to, to Are we praying for the parts of the world, China, the Middle East? Well, we got a temple and we're getting a temple in Shanghai. We're getting a temple in Dubai. Oh, these prayers are being answered, okay? These nations are, are beginning to open their borders. As a Caribbean missionary, you better believe I prayed for Cuba. When will they open their doors? For the missionaries. We, as we were nearing the end of our mission, a bunch of us were like, if Cuba opens, surely the Lord wouldn't send greenies in there. They don't know what they're doing. They would send veteran Caribbean missionaries. Give me another two years. Let me, let me re-up and send me to, to Havana. Uh, we'll, we'll get the work done. But this verse and another one later in verse 21 makes me rethink that. Yes, we should be praying for softened hearts and open minds and open borders as far as missionaries coming in. But which door is first mentioned here? Unlock the door of the kingdom. Oh, wait a minute. In some ways, it's like, wait a minute, who do you think's calling the shots here? The kingdoms of the world or the kingdom of our Lord? Uh, yes, they need to open the doors for the missionaries, but what we're doing is opening the doors of the kingdom so that they can come in. It's you that we are inviting. So we want all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people, to come into a kingdom that has doors wide open, unlocked, and extended for you. Verse 18, For on them have I laid the burden of all the churches for a little season. That goes back to the first presidency that was just listed. They have that burden. The main burden of the Quorum of the Twelve is extending the gospel. The main burden of the first presidency is, is all of the church. Uh, the perfect the saints, that's primarily on the first presidency. Proclaim the gospel, that's primarily on the quorum of the twelve. Verse 19, wherefore, whithersoever they shall send you, go ye, and I will be with you. I'm, I'm playing on the field, okay, not just calling plays from the sideline. And in whatsoever place ye shall proclaim my name, an effectual door shall be opened unto you, that they may receive my word. So we saw a door in 17. We're seeing a door here. The word effectual, it's effective. It actually works. I mentioned this earlier that I wish that movers, or excuse me, that, that furniture designers and door designers would actually get on the same page. Because when I move people and, and, or help people move and have to take doors off hinges and take legs off of <laughs> furniture, and it's like, ah, can I get an effectual door, please? Uh, that will ease this. A door will be opened to you. You're opening the door to them, while a door will be opened to you. We're, we're trying to reciprocate here. Then verse 20, Whosoever receiveth my word, receiveth me. Whosoever receiveth me, receiveth those, the first presidency, whom I have sent. 
whom I have made counselors for my name's sake unto you. There's an echo of the oath and covenant of the priesthood. That if you receive my word or my servants, you're receiving Christ. If you receive Christ, you receive the Father. If you receive the Father, you receive all that the Father has. That's what he's trying to give us. 21, again I say unto you, that whosoever ye shall send in my name by the voice of your brethren, the twelve, duly recommended and authorized by you. See, again, I'm not trying to take away that authority. We just had to try something new in the kingdom and there was no, no time to wait or waste. If you, anyone sent that way shall have power to open the door of my kingdom unto any nation whithersoever ye shall send them. So there's the echo in 21 of what we saw in 17. Lots of doors mentioned, 17, 19, 21. A, a lot of effectual doors. We want the nations to open the doors to the missionaries. But really, are we praying to the Lord to open the doors of the kingdom so that our brothers and sisters in lands without that freedom will be able to come streaming in? That, that's a beautiful, selfless prayer worth offering. Verse 22, Inasmuch as they shall humble themselves before me, and abide in my word, and hearken to the voice of my spirit. So that's how that's all going to happen. That's how you'll be able to succeed. That's how the door will become effectual, as people can come in and enter it. It's by your humility. It's by your faithfulness, your diligence, abiding in my word, hearkening to my voice. There's a lot of humility mentioned throughout this revelation, because it's given to some of the kingdom's very best, the noble and great, that just need to remember where real nobility and true greatness lie, which is in the Lord. In verse 23, Verily, verily, I say unto you, darkness covereth the earth, and gross darkness the minds of the people. All flesh has become corrupt before my face. No wonder I can't look upon the world with any degree of allowance. No wonder I need a veil to hide the world from me. But I'm still reaching out to you, still feeling after you. I'm sending my servants forth. If I can't go, then I will send, and I will send servants, and whether by their voice or my own, or my own, it is the same. This is what you're up against. This is why you'll need my power. Behold, verse 24, vengeance cometh speedily. So we've got to get going. Upon the inhabitants of the earth, a day of wrath, a day of burning, a day of desolation, of weeping, of mourning, and of lamentation. And as a whirlwind, it shall come upon all the face of the earth, saith the Lord." You see why it's so important that we go raise this voice of warning, which also doubles as a voice of reassurance. Vengeance is coming. So I am crying repentance so that you can be forgiven. Uh, wrath is coming. And so I am trying to publish peace. A day of burning. So I'm trying to prepare you for that refiner's fire. The Spirit of God, like a fire, is burning too. I want to be a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, in the furnace so you can come out refined. A day of desolation. So no wonder I am inviting you into this tent of Zion, a covert from storm and from rain. A day of weeping. So please let me dry your tears. A day of mourning. So may I mourn with you and then ultimately comfort you as you stand in need of comfort. A day of lamentation. Can we turn that into a day of joy? It's a great and dreadful day. Let's move from the dreadful to the great. From the worst of times to the best of times. This whirlwind, we are here to help you build your house upon the rock. 
And actually, it's the Lord's house where all of that will be possible. That is the covert from storm from rain. That is the place where tears are wiped away. That is the place where lamentation becomes joy. And so verse 25, all of that begins at his house. Upon my house shall it begin, and from my house shall it go forth, saith the Lord. Remember last week we talked about temples as epicenters of holiness. From that house it shall go forth, the cleansing, the purifying, even the judgment. Much is given, much is required. Those within the temple, that's where most is given and most is required. So we're going to start at the inner vessel. We're going to clean house. This is Alma preaching in Zarahemla. This, this is headquarters, and from there we need to extend that holiness and righteousness in all directions. Verse 26, First among those among you, saith the Lord, who have professed to know my name, and have not known me, and have blasphemed against me, in the midst of my house, saith the Lord. Like I said, there were those apostates who were gathering within the walls of the Kirtland Temple to discuss how do we bring down Joseph Smith and replace him with someone else. Those who have blasphemed God's name in the house where that name is born, oh, there's, there's hypocrisy here. They have professed to know my name, but haven't. This is, this is the fig tree that Jesus curses as he walks from Bethany to Jerusalem. You have leaves, and in a fig tree, if there's leaves, there's supposed to be fruit already. But showing the leaves without the fruit to back it up, well, no wonder it withers. Wouldn't have even needed the Lord's help to make it happen. We end up destroying ourselves. Verse 27, Therefore see to it that ye trouble not yourselves concerning the affairs of my church in this place, saith the Lord. This goes back to what we saw in 111. Concern not yourselves with your debts. I'll take care of it. Concern not yourself with Zion. I'll be merciful. Here, don't trouble yourselves concerning the affairs of my church. It's my church after all. Do what I ask. Run the play. I see the big picture. I will order all things for your good. Just play your role and play it well. Verse 28, purify your hearts before me. And then go ye into all the world and preach my gospel unto every creature who has not received it. Again, it's the Quorum of the Twelve. It's missionary work that they're involved in. But you have to be worthy to do it. Worthy and capable. Here's the worthiness side. Purify your hearts. 29, And he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not and is not baptized shall be damned. Yes, that's what's writing on these missions of yours. Life and death, spiritually speaking. Salvation and damnation. Isn't that what Moses says? I have set before thee life and death. Oh, choose life. Verse 30, For unto you the twelve, and those, the first presidency, who are appointed with you to be your counselors and your leaders, there's the under the direction of, is the power of this priesthood given for the last days and for the last time in the which is the dispensation of the fullness of times. This is what the priesthood is, and this is what the priesthood is for. This is what the dispensation of the fullness of times is all about, where all things are gathered in one in Christ. This dispensation is where we're tying up loose ends. This is the dispensation where all these keys have been restored to finish the work, to prepare the earth for the second coming. Remember a dispensation. That's a hard word to wrap our heads around. It hit me in, the, in a restroom once when I used the soap dispenser. I'm like, oh, I dispensed 
a dispensation of soap from that dispenser. Well, the Lord is dispensing truth and priesthood keys in order to gather Israel on both sides of the veil. This is the priesthood and its power that was given in these last days to the first presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve. This dispensation of the fullness of times. 31, which power you hold in connection with all those who have received a dispensation in any time from the beginning of the creation. For verily I say unto you, the keys of the dispensation which ye have received have come down from the fathers and last of all being sent down from heaven unto you. I love the phrase at the beginning of, of Hebrews 12 where it speaks of a cloud of witnesses. Just a cloud of them. They're just surrounding. You can be enveloped in them. And to think of these fathers, these other dispensation heads to whom God gave the keys of the kingdom and to hold them in connection with all those. I mean, they were passed down. Their fingerprints are still on the baton as it's been passed through this, this relay race. And this is the, the anchor leg, Joseph and Thomas and Hiram and Sidney. Run it well in connection with everyone else. In fact, think about the Pearl of Great Price. This is kind of mind-blowing when, when you see it. And we often think of seven dispensation heads. And we list Adam and Enoch and Noah, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and Joseph Smith. Uh, and that, and again, seven is a pretty powerful number uh, as far as symbolism is concerned. And you take this, and seven can represent wholeness, completeness, totality. It's done, right? The seven days of creation, uh, seven seals, and the seven uh, thousand years of the earth's temporal existence. And, and again, the, the seven presidents of the seven D, it's a great number. In the Prologate Price, and I don't even think it was, it was organized in this way on purpose because the Pearl of Great Price has its own interesting uh, history as far as canonization. But the way it turns out, I remember the Lord will order all things for our good. Who are the main characters in the Pearl of Great Price? You have Adam uh, and the, the creation and the fall uh, all described. You have Enoch in Moses 6 and 7. You have Noah in Moses 8. You get Abraham in the book of Abraham. You get Moses in Moses chapter 1. You get Jesus in Joseph Smith Matthew, and you get Joseph in Joseph Smith history. I mean, it's kind of mind blowing where you realize, whoa, the Pearl of Great Price in some ways is a collection of the dispensation heads. And you get those seven dispensation heads are the seven main characters in the, in the Pearl of Great Price. And in that, in that little book, you see them, you see a connection there's a lot of parallels between their experiences. And Joseph's a lot like Moses in some ways. And always draws upon Abraham as an example. And they're all types of Christ. It's really an amazing thing to see. And this verse just reminds me of it. In connection with all those who've received a dispensation. There's, there's a, a circle, an inner circle of dispensation heads uh, that have had some pretty amazing common experience, common connections. He then closes the Revelation, 33 and 34. Verily I say unto you, behold, how great is your calling. Do you have any idea what I am blessing you with? The opportunity to serve. And that doesn't just apply to Thomas B. Marsh. It doesn't just apply to members of the Quorum of the Twelve or the First Presidency. Any opportunity that we're given to, to be involved in the work of God, to, ex to become humble, 
and become faithful and worthy and, and capable, competent, and extend God's love to all of his children, even the least of these, our brethren, that is a great calling. One that, that can be magnified. One that deserves to be. So, cleanse your heart and your garments. The inside, the outside. Cleanse them, wash them clean in the blood of Jesus Christ. Lest the blood of this generation be required at your hands. That goes back to Jacob and his great anxiety, balanced by his great faith. It was Jacob that magnified his calling. It was Jacob that took his, his garments and shook them before the assembled Nephites to say, your blood is not on these garments. I have done my work. I have magnified my calling, for it was great. And now the ball's in your court. I've cried repentance. Will you? It, it, that's Speaking of counterfeits we talked about earlier, that, that's the opposite, the, uh, the real version of what Pilate does. Pilate washes his hands to say, it's not on me. Jacob washes his hands in a way to say, it was totally on me, but I have done all that God asked, which means it's now on you. Cleanse your hearts, cleanse your garments. We do it by magnifying our, our, our callings to God. And then 34, be faithful until I come, for I come quickly. And my reward is with me to recompense every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega. Amen. Recompense according to your work. Oh, Thomas B. Marsh, you've got work to do. Oh, members of the Quorum of the Twelve and Quorum of the First Presidency, you have work to do. That's your calling. And how great is that calling? But I will serve in it right alongside you. Here I am calling plays. This is the next thing we need to execute. May we do it well. I've prepared you for that. So be humble. And I, the Lord, will lead thee by the hand. After all, my hand is extended. I have been feeling after you. Now, I want to skip ahead to section 114. It's very brief. Two verses is all. But I think it, it harmonizes well with what we just saw in 112. Because it has, it has to do with apostles. It has to do with leadership. It has to do with those that are magnifying their calling and, sadly, those that are falling away from it. In 114, the, the focal point in verse 1 is with D David W. Patton, who's also a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. He's actually most famous for being the first martyr of the church. As he dies later that same year in what's called the Battle of Crooked River. They, there's all kinds of opposition. It's in Missouri. It's all the mobs and, and militia and so on. And he goes to try to, oh, it's almost a commando mission of sorts, to try to bring out some people that were being held captive. And he's killed in the skirmish. At one point earlier, David W. Patton had said, I want to give my life to the kingdom. And Joseph Smith, and Joseph Smith said of him, darn it, he was a man of such great faith. Of course he's going to get what he asked for. Uh, and he, he did receive that martyr's crown. Now, in 114, verse 1, Verily thus saith the Lord, It is wisdom in my servant David W. Patton, that he settle up all his business as soon as he possibly can, and make a disposition of his merchandise, that he may perform a mission unto me next spring, in company with others, even twelve, including himself, to testify of my name and bear glad tidings unto all the world. That seems to be an outgrowth of what we saw in 112. Uh, quorum president, quorum of the twelve, you're going to be sending the, your, your, the quorum members 
out abroad around the world so that every nation, kindred, tongue, and people can make the decision to be baptized and, and be saved? Well, David W. Patton, I want you, Elder Patton, to, to, head, to be part of that mission as well, this in company with others. Next spring, the Quorum of the Twelve will all collectively go on this mission to England. Well, in, at this point, David, get ready for it. Put your house in order. Make a disposition of your merchandise. Settle up your business as quickly as you can because you've got a mission coming up. Now, this is one of those occasions that I see the Lord right on the sideline or on the field calling plays as he sees things go. And yes, he sees the end from the beginning, but also allows for agency and allows things to occur. Uh, we're not puppets on the string. Did David Patton go on the mission with the Quorum of the Twelve to Great Britain? No, because he wasn't alive to go on it. Did he go on a mission of sorts? Definitely. On the other side of the veil. To prepare for that, is, that any, is it any less necessary to settle up your business? Oh, and in more ways than you realize. Is it any less essential to make a disposition of your merchandise? Drop a will is how we would describe it if we knew that death was on our door. Get ready for whatever mission comes your way. Get ready to preach of your maker or to meet thy maker. Either one, make sure that you're ready for it. And David is preparing for the mission he perceives when he gets a change of mission call, a transfer of assignment. I'm glad that the same preparation applied either way. And he was faithful. He did do, he did prepare for whatever mission comes. As opposed to verse 2, the other side, I mean, short revelation, but the two verses couldn't be more opposite in terms of what kinds of things they're talking about. Verse 1, the best of times and the best of people. Verse 2, here's the other. For verily thus saith the Lord, that inasmuch as there are those among you who deny my name, others shall be planted in their stead and receive their bishopric. Amen. We're actually going to see that take place next week in section 118. Not only the verse 2, where people, vacancies in the Quorum of the Twelve are filled, uh, and those that have apostatized during the panic, spiritually as well as uh, temporally, of 1837, those that are, are going to be replaced, we see that in 118, and we see them leave on their mission to Great Britain. It is the spring of the following year. So all of that's fulfilled in that later revelation. But it's interesting in two that the work does go on. We saw early in the Doctrine and Covenants that even Joseph Smith himself was told, hey, you're, you're not irreplaceable. And, and you're going to have to be worthy and capable. Uh, otherwise, if you, if you fall, Someone else will be called to rise and take your place. They are planted in their stead. That, in some ways, is so sad for the person that could have been growing there all along. Thomas B. Marsh, who we just met, is a good example of it. If he's the president of the Quorum of the Twelve, who would have been the second prophet? Thomas B. Marsh lived long enough to outlive Joseph Smith. And... Since the keys of the kingdom were given to the First Presidency and to the Quorum of the Twelve, and there's an equal in authority, so if the First Presidency is dissolved with the death of the then the Quorum of the Twelve still holds equal authority. And the presiding member of the Quorum becomes the next president of the church. Would it have been President Marsh? Well, it was President Young 
because someone was planted in his stead. And President Young received President Marsh's bishopric. Bishopric, his, his stewardship, his calling, his responsibility. Peter actually uses that word in Acts chapter 1, when Judas has denied the Lord's name and then is, falls from his place in the quorum and so a new apostle needs to be planted in his stead. Peter, who I never see quoting scripture in the Gospels, quotes scripture left and right in the book of Acts. He's, he's, there's no more Simon left in him. It's all Peter. Uh, the coin is, is firmly heads up. Okay? And he says this, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. By the way, it's actually really interesting what Peter just did there. He's like, well, as the psalmist said, and he's just quoting scripture, we've got to replace him. But what Peter did actually was just weave together two different psalms into one. If you look for that exact quote in the book of Psalms, it's not there. But it is half and half. Psalm 69:25, let their habitation be desolate and let none dwell in their tents. That's where Peter gets the first half of what he said. And then Psalm 109, verse 8, let his days be few and let another take his office. That's where he gets the second half of what he said. I'm fascinated by that, that, that Peter feels a certain flexibility with Scripture that will take this phrase from that passage and this phrase from that, and I'm understanding the Lord's will based on what's been taught in the past, but it's coming into a new version through, I mean, a new thing in the kingdom, right? And, and prophets, it's the cloud of witnesses. I can use your words and then those words, and now they're becoming my words. And it, To me, it's an amazing thing. We're actually going to see a little bit more of that in section 113 which we can turn to now. 113 is an echo of what we saw back in 77. 77, you remember, uh, they have all these questions about the book of Revelation. What, is that? what does he mean by that? And these weird beasts and eyes and wings. and ah, Well, if Revelation confuses you enough that you need a revelation from God to make sense of it, then yeah, Isaiah, I could use some help there too. I'm surprised we don't have a later revelation about Leviticus, because that's really tricky also. Uh, I guess the saints were less interested. But in section 113, it's another Q&A. Now, it doesn't, it's, it's not quite so clear the way it's formatted. In 77, it was literal Q, followed by literal A. But you see the same thing here. And to me, it bears repeating what we talked about then, that if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Just ask. I give liberally. I don't upbraid. Ask and ye shall receive. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. And if you're an English speaker and you go ask, seek, knock, that's A-S-K. So ask. I can't spell it out any more clearly. If, if you are confused by something, if you're wrestling with questions about the faith, about scripture, about your personal life, turn to the Lord. Turn to, to ancient scripture. Turn to modern prophets. Turn directly to heaven and ask your questions, you can do so. Let him ask. The first question, oh, oh actually, by the way, the first several questions, there's, you can kind of cut or divide 113 in half. A bunch of questions from Joseph Smith at the beginning, and then a question from Elias Higby at the end, which to me speaks volumes too. It's like, it's almost like Elias is empowered or encouraged by Joseph's uh, courage. It's like, wait, Joseph's asking questions and he's getting answers? Uh, can I get in on this action? 
It's like, hey, b- b- before you hang up, can, can, I, can, can I sneak something in? Uh, I, I want to ask this. I've always wondered. And, and, I, and again, I love the fact that Joseph is asking, and okay, Elias, maybe I can too. We all can too. And where is Joseph getting his questions? His questions are all from Isaiah chapter 11, which happens to be the chapter, or one of them, that Moroni quoted to him when he was a 17-year-old kid. That was 1823. This is now 1838. It's almost, by the end of the year, it will be 15 years that that chapter has been marinating, floating around in Joseph's mind and heart. Uh, it's a chapter that, that points to him, as we'll see in this revelation. And I imagine he probably had an inkling of that since that same time Moroni had said, your name will be had for good and evil among all nations. I mean, this is your mission call I'm trying to explain. And so, yeah, you're going to need some Malachi 3 and 4. And, and yeah, you're going to need some Acts 3. And yeah, you're going to need some Isaiah 11. These are all passages about you, Joseph. And so as I'm trying to understand context for the revelations we've studied today, and everything that's going through church history and Joseph's heart at the time, yes, you're going to need a section 111 to deal with the debt. And yes, you're going to need a section 112 to be able to navigate contention and some chaos and confusion in the quorum of the 12. And yeah, you're going to need a 114 because what do we do about church leaders that apostatize? But, But right there in the middle, I wonder if 113 is, Joseph, are you wondering about yourself? Name had for good and evil? You're feeling it on the evil side. Is Do you need a reassurance on the good side? That you're still called and you're still chosen? Wondering, have I, have I blown it in my follies? Am I doing this right? Moroni, I could use another visit. It's been a few years. Can you help me understand what you meant in that chapter about who I'm supposed to be? His first question, who is the stem of Jesse? Spoken of in the first and the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth verses of the 11th chapter of Isaiah. just want to make sure I understand that because that's what everything seems to be growing out of, literally in that passage and symbolically. What, what's the source of it all? What's the root? The answer, verse 2, Verily, thus saith the Lord, it is Christ. That is the stem of Jesse. If you go back to Isaiah 11, verse 1, there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. A branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? He shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. Again, that's Christ in his perfect judgment. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins. Faithfulness, the girdle of his reins. What a perfect description of Jesus Christ in all of his divine attributes. But that first verse, the stem of Jesse and out of it will grow a rod. Now, this is where it's going to get tricky 
And, and section 113 is meant to help, and it does, but it also offers another wrinkle that can get confusing. So we might need some help with our help, okay? This, this idea in, verse, in Isaiah 11.1 1, about the stem of Jesse and a rod grows out, and then the next phrase, a branch shall grow out of his roots, we need to understand a little bit about olive trees. And we, I don't have any grown in my yard. Uh, I don't know much about olive uh, horticulture. No, neither did Joseph Smith, by the way. And yet, uh, Jacob chapter 5 nails it. Uh, if Joseph's making up the Book of Mormon, how do you explain how, what an expert in olive growth uh, he must have been to be able to, to make out of whole cloth Jacob chapter 5? Oh, no. That was written by an expert, namely Zenos. Well, the, the thing about it, though, is if you look at an old, a, a picture of an old, old olive tree, what's interesting is that new shoots, new life can grow out of the, out of the roots directly. Uh, it can grow out of the stump if it's been cut down. It, it's, it's a fascinating metaphor for life growing out of death. It's not just new branches growing out of the, the trunk. New stalks, new rods, new branches can grow out of roots or stumps. In fact, stem of Jesse mentioned there might better be translated as stump of Jesse. To think in, in the Old Testament time that Isaiah is writing in, the Davidic line, the kingdoms have split north and south, Ephraim and Judah. We, we've got wickedness. Most kings uh, have, have been wicked. And yes, we had David and we had Solomon, but we've had so many problematic kings in the past. Is What's happened to the tree? Is, is the tree of Jesse just a stump now? Is it a stem? And, but if, it's a, if it is a stem, can new life grow out of it? I mean, that's where the branch comes in, as far as the branch growing out of those old roots. Capital B branch, the King James translators helped us out there. Uh, that there there's Jesus as well. But, but that's also where it gets a little bit tricky, because you go back to section 113, and it's, no, wait, what's the stem? King James would remind us that, well, the branch that grows out is Jesus. That from this dead house of David, this dead Davidic lion, uh, especially by the time the New Testament rolls around, and there is no king in Israel. They're under the Roman imperial thumb. But Jesus, what's he say later in Isaiah? He is a, a root that grows out of dry ground. This is life coming out of death. This is the, Jesus, the king of the Jews, uh, coming out of a, a dead Davidic line. Uh, the, Jesus is the branch, and he'll be all of those things that were described by Isaiah back in, in chapter 11. But here in 113... Jesus is also clearly the stem of Jesse itself. So, wait, wait a minute. He's, he's the stump and the new stock? He's the old and the new? He's death and life? Oh, actually, yeah. He is. I am he that liveth. I am he that was slain. On the cross, I was cut down. But on resurrection morning, new life grew from that same stump. Jesus as both death and life, as both stem and branch, oh, that's, that's true to form. That, that's a beautiful metaphor that Isaiah offers and that section 113 helps us explain, understand. But then there's also, okay, what about this rod then? 
Now, again, this is where it gets tricky. Uh, if you look at three and four, here's the question and the answer. What is the rod spoken of in the first verse of the 11th chapter of Isaiah, which should come of the stem of Jesse? So it's growing out of it. And the answer, verse 4, Behold, thus saith the Lord, it is a servant in the hands of Christ. So it's not Christ himself in this instance, but it's a servant who is partly a descendant of Jesse, as well as of Ephraim, or of the house of Joseph, on whom there is laid much power. And then 5 and 6, another question, but basically with the same answer. What is the root of Jesse spoken of in the 10th verse of the 11th chapter? We're just still reading in the same chapter. And the answer, Behold, thus saith the Lord, it is a descendant of Jesse, as well as of Joseph, unto whom rightly belongs the priesthood and the keys of the kingdom, for an ensign and for the gathering of my people in the last days. Now that's the end of Joseph's question and answer period, and then we're going to shift to Elias's in, in, starting in verse 7. But do you see the parallel between the answer in 6 and the answer in 4? Both instances it speaks of this kind of dual inheritance, Part from Jesse, part from Ephraim. Now Jesse was David's father, and David's the tribe of Judah, uh, so Jesse's Judah. So you have kind of this combination of the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Ephraim. Now Judah was the leadership tribe. The scepter shall not pass from his hand. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Uh, we speak of, that's why Jesus was from Judah. But Ephraim was the birthright tribe, because it went to Joseph and from Joseph to Ephraim. So there's some kind of combination king and priest, if you want to put it that way. And there's some symbolism there, especially as you think of the temple. You think of political as well as spiritual leadership there. I mean, even the way Matthew lines up Jesus' lineage in Matthew chapter 1, his focal points are Abraham and David. Abraham is the spiritual leader of Israel. David is the political leader of Israel. And what's Jesus? He's meant to be both. King of kings, thank you, David. Lord of lords, thank you, Abraham. Uh, it's all coming together in him. Well, in this final dispensation where all things are gathered in one, who, who combines within them Temporal and spiritual leadership. Oh, there's Aaronic and Melchizedek. Who combines within them political as well as religious stewardship? Joseph was not only the prophet, he was the mayor of Nauvoo. He wasn't just president of the church. He ended up running for president of the United States. He, uh, I know there's concerns about theocracy that people raised in his time period, but there was a sense of, of responsibility in all aspects of life. And so when you read verse 4 and verse 6, who else could it be referring to than Joseph Smith? Uh, is this strict bloodline that he's talking? I don't know. Or is it more the roles that you are called upon to play? You've descended from Jesse. You've descended from Ephraim. You are a combined leadership and, stu and stewardship. You, you are priest and king firstborn, a birthright, as well as, as leadership in, in this family. Uh, to see the, the, the much power is laid on him. Joseph's just been endowed with power from on high. A servant in the hands of Christ, and the Lord is constantly giving that responsibility to him. As he said in 6, the priesthood and the keys of the kingdom belong to you. You're an ensign, an example, a standard that the people look to.
and your responsibility as just granted you by the keys restored a couple chapters ago by Moses is for the gathering of my people in the last days. Uh, remember, why do you think uh, the angel Moroni was quoting chapter 11 of Isaiah to this sleepy 17-year-old? Because this is who you're supposed to be. Now, I hope that makes sense, but let me trouble the waters a little bit, okay? And I hope that we can clarify things yet again. Because the challenge with chapter 11, verse 1, Hebrew poetry is meant to rhyme. And you might be thinking, well, yeah, poetry always rhymes. Well, not quite. There's free verse and so on. Uh, but what's amazing about Hebrew poetry, it's, it's fun for me to say this to my students. I'm like, did you know that Isaiah rhymes? It's a big epic poem, except for a few chapters of prose in the middle. But it's this massive poem, uh, and it rhymes. And they're looking at it going, what? I don't see any rhymes. And then somebody, some smart student will usually say, oh, well, I mean, because well, this is in translation. It must have rhymed in Hebrew. I'm like, ah, there you go. Yes, it did rhyme in Hebrew. And they're like, ah, that's cool. I said, but it does still rhyme in English. They're like, what? Like, yeah, and it rhymes in Spanish, it rhymes in French, it even rhymes in American Sign Language. And then they're really confused, like, what are you talking about? I said, oh, you thought rhyming was only for repeating sound? No, no, no. Rhyming is also for repeating ideas. And that's what Hebrew poetry does. It doesn't make the same sound at the end of, of verses. It takes an idea and then just echoes it in different words. I mean, that's, that was the biggest game changer I ever had when I was learning how to understand Isaiah. Uh, and once you have the eyes to see it, it's like, whoa, that's true. He'll say it, and then he'll say it again in different words. And sometimes it's the exact same uh, uh, thought. Sometimes it's, it's its opposite. So, so there's uh, parallelisms that are uh, synonymous, others that are antithetical. I mean, there's all kinds of chiasmus. There's all kinds of different crescendo, decrescendo. Isaiah's got all kinds of tricks up his, his poetic sleeve. But the idea of just repeating ideas is, is key to it. I had one student that just laughed. He's all, this is awesome. I don't have to make sense of 66 chapters. I only have to understand 33. <laughs> I'm like, well, I like your math, but not quite that. But you're, you're getting the idea of it. And it does give people some hope. Well, if you go back to Isaiah 11.1, 1, well, here's just the, the, you can hear the rhyme or see the repeated idea. There shall come forth a rod, new life, out of the stem of Jesse, old life. Let's say that again in different words. A branch shall grow out of his roots. Oh, yeah, that, that, that sounds like the same idea quoted twice. And, in a way, and yes, it is. And what's that branch, capital B, thank you King James translators? It's Jesus, it's all of those things. And he will rise out of a dead Davidic line. But then how do we make sense of 113? Because the Lord there said, Oh, I'm, I'm actually the stem. Like, what? I thought you were the branch. Well, yeah, that too. Oh, and what about the rod? I mean, here it sounds like it's Joseph Smith. Back in Isaiah 11, that sounds like it's Jesus. Like, yeah. Well, which one is it? Yeah. Well, what? How, how does that work? How can... Two, two similar questions, or two related questions. First, how can Jesus be both the stump and the, 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 the new rod. Uh, in other words, how can he be the old and the new? Well, we talked about that in terms of crucifixion and resurrection. Okay? He is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega after all, right? But then the other related question, well, where does Joseph Smith fit in all of this? Because this make it, makes it sound like Jesus is the old and Joseph is the new. 
But also, if Jesus is the new, how did Joseph is? But Jesus, wait, what? Well, in some ways, I'm glad we said what we did about Paul, uh, Peter's quotation, quote unquote, of Psalms based on what we read at the end of section 114. It shows a certain flexibility with Scripture that, that Peter had. That, well, we're going to take this part of Psalms and this part of Psalms and sew them together to help us make sense of the situation we happen to be in right now with the suicide of one apostle and the need to call a new one. That never happened before. And kind of saying what's going on in 114. What do we do when people have apostatized and left the Quorum of the Twelve? Well, this is what, this is what happens. Go back to Peter. Well, Peter. We'll go back to the Psalms. Well, which Psalm? Well, there's a couple of them. Just, yeah, do you understand what I'm trying to do here? There's a flexibility with God's Word that I find really inspiring. We'll see it later from Joseph Smith when he quotes Malachi. And he's all, I've got a couple different versions of this. There's the, the Moroni version that I got as a kid. There's the King James version. In fact, I mean, I could go with, with Moroni's, but I'll stick with King James for this one. It's good enough. And it's like, wait, what? The, to, as I read it, the older Joseph got, the more flexible he became with Scripture. Even to the point that later, as he's quoting Peter, of all people, he says, well, what Peter was teaching is just a hint of what existed in the prophet's mind. So let's eliminate the middleman and go straight back to God. And I'm going to teach what Peter taught, but through the words that God has taught me. See how we're going to do this? It's like, whoa. We are so far away from the scriptural inerrantism that so much of, of evangelical Christianity thinks that you have to be tied to. And it's actually led to a lot of problems throughout Christian history, uh, forcing yourself into only one biblical box, and it has to be this way. Oh, many skeptics who have tried to shred the Bible are banking on people having an inflexible faith or a brittle belief that is unbending. No, this is exactly what it is. And uh, careful, it might not be. Okay? Remember what Joseph said in Joseph's history after his baptism. Man, the Spirit helped us see things in the Scriptures we never thought possible. We started to understand their true meaning and intention. So not just what it meant when it was written, but what it intends to mean in later periods of history, to later readers. What is it, how is it speaking to me? How do I interpret this with, in new context? There's hermeneutic versus exegesis, okay? Uh, I see that happening in section 113 in, in profound ways. Stems and rods and branches and roots and all these parts of the tree that I don't get. Well, what is it? Well, you think Jesus. Think Joseph. Are there times where those can be almost synonymous? Now, careful. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to put Joseph on Jesus' level in any way. But when it comes to the cloud of witnesses, especially this collection of dispensation heads, oh, there are so many ways in which Joseph's life is meant to point to the higher precedent of Jesus's. I mean, Isaiah himself was that way. He has to name his kids really strange names because they point forward. It's like, sorry, you're the, you're the family of the prophet. You're all going to need to be prophetic in a, sort, in a certain way. Okay? You're all visual aids for God. Deal with it. Uh, and that's the way it was for Joseph. There are so many types of shadow and shadows of Jesus in the Old Testament. And even in the New, as so much of what Peter goes through in the book of Acts points back to experiences that Jesus himself had. And the same is true of Joseph. Uh, Joseph is not our Savior. Joseph does, does not redeem us. We do not worship him. 
But there are so many things about the life and ministry of Joseph Smith that is an echo of Jesus. And so as you're trying to wrap your head around all of this, and I'm trying to make sense of Isaiah 11, you want to be most simple? This is an oversimplification, but if it helps, a 17-year-old kid rubbing the sleep out of his eyes, Moroni would say to Joseph, you're supposed to be like Jesus. Become so much more like the Savior in order to help other people come unto him. And so there's going to be some parallel there. Also the idea of, well, who's growing out of whom? Well, that's another one that to me is fascinating. Because it's obvious that Joseph grows out of Jesus. That as a Christian, he's studying the New Testament. He finds James 1.5. The Father and the Son appear to him. Joseph's whole ministry is based in his Christianity. Joseph is a is new growth out of, out of Jesus himself. It is a restoration out of Christianity. But can you flip it? And I think in, in beautiful ways you can. It's obvious that Joseph grew out of Jesus. But in a way, did Jesus then continue growing out of Joseph? Not Jesus personally, but in terms of Jesus' church, his gospel, his authority. I mean, you understand what I'm trying to say here? I, I, I'm sorry if it's confusing. It's, it's still a little confusing to me as far as which the, uh, how do I do this? You see a flexibility of, in scripture here where the divine artist is bringing in pieces together and weaving them into something new and it's beautiful. But, but how, how did he do this? To see how Jesus Christ comes out of the restoration of Joseph Smith's instrumentality. That Joseph's life is evidence of him growing out of Jesus, but his life was spent trying to allow Jesus to continue to reach out to God's children throughout the world. That the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints grew out of Joseph Smith's efforts to be an instrument in God's hands. So stems and stumps and roots and branches and stalks and everything, the whole horticulture is part of the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have Jesus to thank for that ultimately. And we can give, a, we owe a debt of gratitude to Joseph Smith as well. I hope that with the Spirit's help, that makes a little bit of sense to us all. Well, whatever it made sense, it did encourage Elias Higby. Okay, it's like, I, I want in on this. There's a verse of scripture that's always confused me. If that one's been on your mind for the last 15 years, Joseph, well, this one's been on mine. Verse 7, questions by Elias Higby. What is meant by the command in Isaiah 52nd chapter, first verse, which saith, Put on thy strength, O Zion. And what people had Isaiah reference to? I do want to applaud Brother Higby for his excellent taste in Isaiah, by the way. Uh, Isaiah 52 is a chapter that, repeat, that appears several times in the Book of Mormon. Uh, and, and since the saints are so focused on Zion, I can, it makes sense why a church member and leader would, would want to know about that one. Put on thy strength, O Zion. Who does that? Is this a Jewish thing? Since we just, just prayed for the gathering of Israel in the dedicated, dedicatory prayer, uh, who's supposed to do this? And what does it mean to put on strength? The Lord's answer is verse 8. He had reference to those whom God should call in the last days. So I'm looking at you, Elias, who should hold the power of priesthood 
to bring again Zion and the redemption of Israel. And to put on her strength is to put on the authority of the priesthood, which she, Zion, has a right to by lineage, also to return to that power which she had lost. This kind of ties into what I said to Joseph just a few verses ago about loss and regain, about death and life, about new growth out of an old stump. Zion, oh, put on your beautiful garments. Awake and arise. Don't let the world slumber, Thomas B. Marsh. Elias Higby, put on the authority of the priesthood. You've been ordained, you've been called, but many are called, few are chosen, so go get chosen. If Zion is to increase in beauty and in holiness, if we're supposed to enlarge her borders and strengthen her stakes, all of that is part of this putting on the strength of Zion. And you who hold priesthood, you who have authority, are you living in such a way that you will have power to match it? Because that is part of the increasing in beauty and holiness that's required as well. It's your right it's your lineage. It's been passed down, like we saw in, in, in chapter uh, 112, that this, these keys, it's a part of the collection and it's come down from the fathers. And so Zion, oh, that's the baton that's being passed from Adam to Enoch to Noah to Abraham to Moses to Jesus to Joseph. We're trying to bind together Zion from all ages. Zion from above coming to meet Zion from below. Zion built to prepare for Zion brought. The rainbow, we're trying to get it to connect heaven and earth. May the kingdom of God go forth that the kingdom of heaven may come. Zion, strengthen yourself. You've got work to do. And then verse 9, what are we to understand by Zion loosing herself from the bands of her neck? So the second verse of that same chapter. Oh, we're still part of the poem. More and more, more echoes. To put on strength? Well, let me say that in a different way. Loose yourself from the bands of your neck. If the first is adding the positive, the second is eliminating the negative. The atonement does both of those. Plants flowers and pulls the weeds. But what does he mean by loosing the bands? Verse 10. We are to understand that the scattered remnants are exhorted to return to the Lord from whence they have fallen. Which if they do, the promise of the Lord is that he will speak to them or give them revelation. See the sixth and the seventh and the eighth verses. The bands of her neck are the curses of God upon her or the remnants of Israel in their scattered condition among the Gentiles. You understand what the answer I'm trying to give? Not just to your very specific and excellent question, Elias Igby but to the saints as they are asking bigger questions about what is going wrong with Zion. Why can't we build it? Well, in part, you're not quite strong enough. In part, you still have these bands on your neck that don't allow you to look down in humility or look up in faith, and both of those will be required. To, to, to remove those bands, through the power of the atonement of Jesus Christ, to overcome those curses in order to receive the blessings of God, to reverse the scattering of Israel by living into those priesthood keys just restored by Moses and engage in the gathering of Israel from the four corners of the world. That is the work to which I'm calling you, Elias, 
and you, Joseph, and you, Thomas, and you, as Heber, and Orson, and Brigham, and everyone else. You have work to do. And it is work, and it is glory. And it is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. As you engage in that, even as you look around wondering, I don't know if we're doing it right. And we're, making, we're, we're committing follies and we're making mistakes and some are falling away and we're trying to find new people to replace them and all these things going on in these chapters. You got questions? Come and ask. And you will receive revelation. I will speak to you. That is my promise. And these revelations we've studied today stand as evidence of promise fulfilled.